Good. Yeah. So are you all ready, Jim? Oh, I'm ready, Patrick. Jim, I'm do you want to so hear? Ready. Do you want to hear what my number ten movie of 2015 is? You know, I kind of do. Well, if you only kind of, we can do something else. Hmm. You I know, kinda, I kind of. I got. Kinda... I got rules of the game on on Blu-ray for Christmas. Oh we shit! Could, we could kick this whole recording to the curb and just watch uh, genre noir movies all night. Or we could play Parcheesi. We could play. We. I. I did. <laughs> did you saw that Parcheesi box over there that I also got for Christmas. That's true. I got rules of the game in Parcheesi, and I got instructions for Parcheesi. Flipping and the my coin. Dad, and my dad said. And my dad said, "You know, we didn't know what you meant for rules of the game, so we just covered our bases." <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I, I think we'll just go with the number ten. Yeah, of uh, twenty fifteen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When Marnie was there. Okay. Um, now here's the thing about me and anime. I adore the aesthetic of anime, which is to say the stillness of the animation and the highly detailed painted backgrounds, um, especially in real life places. Uh, the the sort of draftsman kind of quality to a lot of like buildings and mm-hmm. rooms and mm-hmm. stuff like that. I think it's so beautiful, and so anime drives me fucking nuts because instead of actually depicting the real world in the beautiful way it can, it makes up some bullshit. It's always fantasy or sci-fi, and it's some fucking giant robot or some power stone or some bullshit like that. Yeah, that's why Princess Mononoke didn't resonate with me, but Spirit Away did. Yeah, Spirit Away doesn't feel – yeah. Spirit Away is sort of one of the exceptions, but in general, I really, really, really like – Studio Ghibli movies and really, really, really respect them, but I don't embrace them the way a lot of people do. But The Wind Rises and When Marty Was There are two of my favorites because they exist in the real world. Um, hmm. When Marty Was There is a weird movie because number one, it's about this girl. She Anime has, is weird. Yeah, she had well, she has asthma and she gets sent to her aunt and uncles in the country because oh, the city's not good for her. And she's adopted and she has sort of a strained relationship with her foster mother. Um, because she found out that her foster mother gets a government stipend. So she's like, well, she clearly doesn't care about me. She's just getting that money. You know, she's getting paid to take care of me. Um, and in general, she just feels like a burden on everyone. So she's very withdrawn. Uh, it's a very good character. And then when she's in the country, she meets this blonde haired girl named Marnie. Um, and it, okay. So the way when Marnie was there proceeds and I, I almost want to ask you guys if it's okay to spoil or not because the ending was, that made me cry more than any other thing in the movie is so integral to what makes this movie so weird. But at any rate, the way the, the weird movie – Weird or sad? Uh, well, both. Okay. Um, the way the movie proceeds is as a budding romance between Marnie and this, and this other girl. It is absolutely like The Whisper of the Heart is another uh, Studio Ghibli movie that depicted like – uh, romance between characters of this age. Same with uh, Up on Poppy Hill. And it proceeds the exact same way. They're just like very close and they're very affectionate towards each other. And I really thought, like, oh, wow, that's awesome. They did a lesbian Whispers of the Heart. That's wonderful. Like, cool. Yeah. Good on Studio Ghibli uh, for, you know, going there or whatever. And then, the, then there's sort of a mystery whether or not Marty is actually there or she's this character's imaginary friend. Um, and they find out that there is a someone named Marnie did live in this big house that they've been playing in that is now abandoned in the past. Um, and so the whole thing proceeds as romance and it's very touching and moving and wonderful. And it's just detail driven and it's very patient. And it's just the sort of thing, like I love whisper of the heart for the same reason. It's just like a very gentle romance 
um, featuring characters in an age that romance is not often depicted in films. Kind of um, like Moonrise Kingdom? Yes, it's it's sort of like that, though Moonrise Kingdom is a lot funnier about it, and there's... But yes, like, that is also why I really like Moonrise Kingdom. Like, Moonrise Kingdom is kind of smirking about it, because the thing about Wes Anderson movies is all the adults act like children, all the children act like adults, and they're... Right, right. Like, and that's definitely sort of what that plays into, whereas in Mar- when Marnie was there, they're definitely acting like you act when you're 12 or 13, you know? And there isn't, there isn't that sort of sexual aspect to it. Um, or it, there's a, there is a reluctance to acknowledge the sexual aspect of it, I'll say, because it's not as if no lust exists when you're 13. It's just like, oh, I don't know what I'd do with these feelings, and I'm probably screwed up anyway, so I better just keep it to myself, you know? I'm just going to masturbate in the library and rub my semen against <laughs> Right, basically. <laughs> um uh, uh, so when Marty was there, just as it proceeds, it's very nice romance, um, that is never consummated. They don't kiss. They do dance together. Um, so at the end of it, can I spoil, can I spoil this? (laughs) You you can spoil it. Okay. Okay. So at the end of this, it is revealed that Marnie is in fact her grandmother, um, and that her grandmother lived in this giant house when her... Gwen, she was that age, and her grandmother was this like very rich kid who was alienated by her parents, and went on and was abused by the staff at like the the servants of this house. Oh Jesus! And she went on to have mental problems because of this, and so she wasn't there to raise her own daughter because she got married very young, and because she wasn't there to raise her own daughter, she had a strained relationship with her daughter, and her daughter got married young and had a child. And very, like at the age of nineteen or whatever, and then died in a car accident with her husband. Um, and the child that she had is the the girl with asthma. So this re- and so the thing that made me cry so hard is at the end it turns into them these two characters forgiving each other for not being there and and like oh for feeling abandoned and for feeling like they've abandoned that each other. Um, it, it, there's there's more to it than that, but basically, it it sort of before the before the romance, which it absolutely never doesn't feel like a romance before that becomes anything physical or anything like that, like it just sort of takes a left turn and becomes this thing about sort of accepting mistakes that your family has made, and even if it's left you in a bad place, and accepting and these and you know this this child and the ghost of her grandma, or maybe her own imagined version of her grandmother at that age. They, like, forgive each other, and it's utterly beautiful. I should also say, this is just... this. I think at the time they made this, they, Studio Ghibli thought this was going to be their last film. It is the most beautiful Studio Ghibli movie. Like, it doesn't have that... You know, there's, like, scenes in, like, Totoro or whatever where they're growing the tree where it's just, like, jaw-dropping sort of art design. It takes place in the real world, so there isn't that sort of thing. But the animation, the... The art, everything, is uh, more beautiful than I've ever seen a Studio Ghibli movie. And Jesus that, Christ! So that reconciliation at the end just devastated me. And because you think it's proceeding as a romance, um, you don't see it coming. No. <laughs> and it's weird, right? It's like because it doesn't feel incestual. It's hard to wrap my mind around. Yeah, it was hard for me to wrap my mind around it as well because it was it was a movie that I almost I was like, well, this is kind of cool, but I. It's kind of just what I, I don't see where it's going with all of this. The romance doesn't seem to be progressing anywhere. Like it's just hitting the same notes. And then that left turn suddenly 
like more than any movie I can think of in recent memory, like recontextualizes everything you just saw and it's just devastatingly beautiful. So when Marnie was there, again, a lot of people are saying it's 2014. Maybe it had a New York release in 2014. It had Chicago release this year. Um, it is incredible, incredible, beautiful movie. And that's just your number 10. Yeah. I don't, I don't think, I don't think I like it as much as like spirited away. I think spirited away still just feels like a next level. Like spirit away feels foundational in the way like Alice in Wonderland feels foundational to me. Yeah. Like it just feels incredible. Um, but like when Marnie was there is a devastatingly beautiful, touching movie. And God, yeah, that turn at the end. That speaking of surprising moments, <laughs> like, and I'm sorry that I robbed anyone who hasn't seen it yet of that surprise. But I think I think honestly the movie may work better once you know what it is. It's not the sort of thing where the twist is like the point of it. Right. Um. So yeah, it's a really weird movie because again, it never doesn't feel like a romance, and they don't acknowledge it. <laughs> it's not like oh well, it's a good thing we you know because from up on Poppy Hill has a romance is another recent Studio Ghibli movie that has two like characters who are 12 or whatever falling in love with each other. And before anything happens, they realize that they both have the same absentee father who is a sailor. And like, they're like, Oh, okay. And they sort of acknowledge the awkwardness, but then like go on to be very close and friends and stuff. Hmm. When Marty was there, never does that little twist where it's like, Oh, I thought we were going to kiss, but it turns out we're hugging because we're related. Like that's wild. It, it never acknowledges it. So it makes me wonder if there's a cultural thing that, is separating it or if it is just acknowledging love in a different way. Like it's, it, it is just like, it, this is about love. This is about two characters falling in love, but they're not falling in love romantically the way you thought they were. I don't know. It's a really, really cool movie and it's gorgeous. I feel like a dick. Why? Because I haven't kept up with Studio Ghibli since Ponyo. You haven't seen The Wind Rises? No. Oh, it's wonderful. I will. I will. Yeah. I will. I promise. Yeah, okay. again, I'm not the biggest Studio Ghibli person, so people who prefer the fantasy of Studio Ghibli, they may find this a little dry or dull, but I thought it was gorgeous. It sounds really good. I'd yeah. like to see it. You know what movie isn't very gorgeous, Patrick? Yes. Um, I do know what movie isn't very gorgeous. It's uh, Jurassic World. No. I have this very <laughs> ugly digital aesthetic. At one point in Jurassic World, a gate slimes a, a gate slams down behind Christopher Pratt, and it's a CGI gate. <laughs> like speaking of like bullshit, like they have him roll under a gate that slams behind him, and instead of just getting a stuntman to roll under a gate that's slamming, they have Chris Pratt roll, and then they put in a CGI gate. No thanks. Yeah, real bad. What what is not gorgeous? Mad Max Fury Road. Oh, that's a that is a that is a gritty movie. <laughs> it is. You know why it may not be gorgeous? Because it's, you know, it's a pop, 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 it's a popolic, wow, I can't even say it, apocalyptic world, you know? Post, you might even say. Yeah. There's a lot of sand and <laughs> dust and dirt <laughs> and grime. Name other minerals. Quick. <laughs> Is there shale? <laughs> yeah. You know... Maybe it's too low for some people, but it made my top ten. Yeah, yeah. I'll admit that, you know... It's a special movie. It is. I The second time watching it at home, though, it didn't quite live up to the first experience seeing it at the theater. Sure. 
Um, I was blown out of my seat the first time I saw it. It felt like an adrenaline rush. I got I got a lot of very excited texts from you. Yeah, it was like Patrick, I've got a boner, yeah. and its name is Mad Max Fury Road. Yeah, and, and I, what did I say? I said slam it in a car door until it goes away. <laughs> well, yeah, of course. That's what you always say whenever whenever I text you I have a boner. Well, yeah, it's it's good advice. It is. Hmm. Um, you know, George Miller, his ability to construct kinetic action scenes in mostly a practical way is pretty astonishing at age 72. I, I, I don't understand how a man that old has the patience to make, to like muscle a movie like this through the studio system. That That is maybe one of the most astounding things about it. It, it took him a while to, to, to make it, as far as I know. Yeah. Um, but I don't know, those, those, those are real guys swinging back and forth and I, I, I realize the, the speeding up and ramping up of things you know, could fall under Michael Bay territory, but in this context, it felt very effective, and well, the, I, it wasn't I'll, obnoxious yeah, to me. I, also, number one, if you if you don't mind the aesthetic of Mad Max Fury Road, I that's fine. That's it's totally my own personal thing. And number two, I wouldn't say it's Michael Bay because the compositions are still very clean. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah, not yeah. a it's not a lot of uh, over you know over shaky handheld work and right, stuff like that. Right, right. It's it's yeah. It's very smooth, I think, yeah. for the most the part. The idiosyncrasies of Mad Max Fury Road are also nothing like Michael Bay would use either. Like they're very peculiar at times. Right. Whereas Michael, Mike, you know, Michael Bay is very much like, you know, test test audience this, make sure everything appeals to everyone in Middle America before we put it in the movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I think I think one one of the, one of the more interesting moments is, uh, you know, when Max is shooting this gun, hoping to shoot. Like a a vehicle off in the distance. It's at night, and like there's a blue hue, a blue tint over the you know the screen and stuff. And you know he's trying to shoot this car, and he can't he can't aim he can't aim right or he can't nail his target. But then Furiosa picks up the gun and does it in one shot. And I just love that moment. It's like well, specifically she balances it on his shoulder. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And fires exactly. right next to his ear. I feel like much like Star Wars, you know, it, it allows for a very strong female heroine in its center, and it's a plus. And I, I think they're both really good characters and um, intense, visceral stuff throughout. I mean, I mean, I think I don't know why it's in like you know absolutely blow. I know I know people have seen this movie a dozen times already. <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah, but. It's not something I'm like overly thrilled to rewatch time and time again, and you may be right. In, in Road Warrior, it's probably a better film, but in terms of you know blockbuster action escapism, I was beside myself watching this movie in the theater in 2015. So it has to be in my list. It just has to because like I, I I really did like Mission Impossible: Rogue Nation. There's certainly action movies. Of, of recent memory, I think, um, you know, I've enjoyed, and I mean, but I, I will say, like, hearing Nick DiGiulio saying that this blows something like Terminator 2 out of the water really irks me, because, <laughs> because I, I don't know, because, like, I, I just think maybe it is just because, you know, Terminator 2, and I think you mentioned this a couple of times, it, 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 it seems to uh, know when to use CGI, and seems to know when to be practical, and you're made fully aware of it as you're watching it. And like the the freaking truck chase in that movie yeah. is just phenomenal. Like, and again, I even mentioned 
Like, there's stuff in Spider-Man 2 that I love more in Fury Road. Yeah. So there's... I mean, I understand... So it's not even about practicals, because all that Spider-Man stuff is all CGI, yeah. Uh, so it's not even about that. That's just me getting a boner over Sam Raimi. But still, sure. I, I, I will say that, like, this, this movie is still a monumental achievement, and certainly if it, it wins a lot more awards and accolades, it's well-deserved. And I, I still love it. I don't know yeah. if it's going to be something I rewatch over and over again, but it's something that I'll never forget in terms of a memorable experience. Sure. It was, that was actually that was an important moment for me this year um, when I saw the midnight showing of Terminator 2 on 35mm at the Music Box. It was like three days after I saw Fury Road. And I just sort of realized that I was out of time. I was out of my time. <laughs> like, <laughs> like I, it was just this moment where, like, I guess I'm just old-fashioned then. Well, like, I just thought, I, which is which is fine. Like, you know, does it? I mean, maybe it's because I was younger, but I saw Terminator 2 opening night, and I thought this is the action movie I, I've always yeah. wanted. And yeah. It's like it still people, is the action movie I always want. Like, yeah. yeah, that still is top three action movies of all Agreed. time for me. It's yeah. like Die Hard, Terminator 2, and something else. <laughs> Point Break, maybe. Maybe, yeah. What's your number 10, Bill? My number 10 uh, is Mistress America. Ooh. And um, so Francis Ha was my favorite film of the year, what, like two years ago? With the, the 2013 when it came out? That was my favorite film of that year. And this year I saw Noah Baumbach show three different films. Because um, I saw him show While We're Young. I saw him show Mistress America. And then I also saw, saw him uh, show De Palma. Uh, which he co-directed with uh, Jake Paltrow, which comes out, I guess, next year. Um, Matt Gamble's most anticipated film of the year. Yeah, I would imagine so. Um, so, Mrs. America, you know, was, um, for people that don't know, was, like, shot after Francis Ha, but then he left the project to make While We're Young and then went back and finished putting the pieces together of, of what he shot of Mrs. America. So it's... It's it, it, it's an odd chronologically it's it's the follow up to Francis Ha but it came out after While We're Young. Um, I just you know I just think there's something really uh, engaging about these films. I don't I don't like it as much as Francis Ha, but it's I mean most films I don't like as much as Francis Ha. Um, basic strengths are the same. Like it's still focusing on like female friendships uh, as opposed to romance, which I find really refreshing. Um, I think Gerwig is still uh, very funny in it. Um, it's you know uh, it's less influenced by things like uh, Mumblecore, the French New Wave. Like it feels more like a screwball comedy. I think we maybe mentioned that earlier, and uh, it's just really funny. Um, it's probably one that I will rewatch a lot more than some of the more difficult films I'll be mentioning later. But you know, it's um, yeah, it's just one I, I like a lot, and uh, you know, Noah Baumbach. You know, he could become, you know, at this rate, maybe like when Woody Allen goes, like, I don't know, I'm more optimistic for him being the, the guy that takes his place than, um, I don't know, like Wes Anderson, I could see maybe occupying that place also, but I don't know. His stuff is so much more designed. He also feels. doesn't work as, like, depends on what place you're talking about, because he also doesn't work at the rate that Allen works at. Well, neither of them do. I, I don't well, Bob, I mean, Bob Buck had three movies this year. <laughs> Like, well, but one what is like a talking head, not even talking heads, talking head documentary, mm-hmm. and then one of them was done. In, it was already in the can in two thousand, probably fourteen. Right. Um, I don't know, but um, yeah, I think he's. You know, I, I've I've liked every film of Noah Baumbach's. I mean, he's he's always consistent for me. Like his, 
you know, you mentioned like video store watch. I, I, every, any of his films were always like, you know, something I could throw on, except, you know, ones that had like too much like sexual content. I couldn't watch in the video store in the middle of the day, but like, uh, yeah, I, his stuff is always rewatchable. It's always quotable. Um, you know, I'm excited to see what he does next, but yeah, that's my number 10. And that is my number nine. So I'll just jump right into, um, it, it, Mistress America is not only the funniest movie I've seen in years. Um, it there's not many movies that make me laugh as hard as it does that also are as character driven as it is. Mm. Um, it feels like especially remarkable in that way. Like I still really like a lot of you know like I don't know Seth Rogen comedy. Like this is the end. I thought it was a really funny movie and that makes me laugh a lot. And there's you know there's several movies of that nature that are kind of. The, the characters are disposable. The stories are disposable. You know, it's it, they just are funny people being funny and charming in front of the camera, and that's sort of the appeal of the movies. Right. Um, this has such wonderful, rich characters that are sketched so finely, so quickly, um, and they don't exist in the real world quite. Like they're not. It's it's a it's a world that's just like. What's the line? What's the line in this? The the psychic he says you're you're ten feet to the left. Oh yeah. <laughs> like oh, yeah. this movie exists ten feet to the left of Francis Ha, um, but <laughs> but for it to, you know, number one, I think it is his funniest movie, and I think Kicking and Screaming is one of the funniest movies of all time. Yeah. So I that that really is saying something about this. I think this is just an all time comedy. The way. That I don't know. The first time I saw Hot Fuzz, I just knew that Hot Fuzz was one of the funniest movies I'd ever seen in my life. This, and I knew I would watch it over and over again. This is a movie I will absolutely watch over and over again. I think Greta Gerwig. I don't. I don't think. I don't think Noel Baumbach is as consistent as you think he is. I. I, I think. I. I think he. You know, he has hits and misses. I think all of his movies are worth seeing, but. Um, I would certainly say, like, the quality of something like Margot. I like less movies like Margot at the Wedding and more movies like this. I think, in general, mm-hmm. Gerwig seems to be a wonderful influence on him. That I don't know if it just her as an actress uh, is able to... She's able to have so many bad personality traits as a character and make them feel endearing um, in yeah. a way that a lot of... Like, all of his characters have a lot of negative personality traits. All of his characters are deeply flawed and, in ways, selfish and uh, myopic people. That's, uh, but often, you know, like, you know, Ben Stiller and Greenberg, you do not cotton to him. And it doesn't, you know, that that's not the point of the movie, is that you like him. Um, but I think that there is a sort of effervescent tone to Mistress America and to a certain extent to Francis Ha, even though that movie's a little more dramatic, that... I can only attribute to Gerwig's influence on him as a, you know, as a collaborator. Yeah. He said that, um, talking about Margaret, the wedding versus something like, you know, the last couple films, he said he's just in a happier place and it's, I mean, reflected in the writing. I mean, it sounds like a superficial thing, but it's probably true. Well, that's, I mean, that, that's wonderful. And I hope he, I hope he stays in a happier place. Not just, not just because it's probably better for his, you know, mental health, <laughs> but because it's better for me as a film grower to have movies like this pop up every couple of years. Um, yeah, like like we said, there's so many quotable lines in Mistress America that I didn't think of any of them because the, <laughs> I could just I could just say the entire script. Yes, for is the most memorable quote of 2015. 
Um, yeah, it's nonstop. It's, it's not like, just it's almost it's not, like His Girl Friday. By the time they right, get to and it's not just like zinging. It's not just like little zingers and one-liners. There's just like unexpected odd humor comes from weird places where you know when she after she first gets home from meeting uh, Greta Gerwig's character and she's writing her short story. And you hear her narrating it, and you think it's in her head, and then her roommate's like, shut up! Because her roommate's trying to sleep. Like, little moments like that are just so inspired. Um, yeah. It's it's hard to think of a movie that... It's hard to think of a straightforward comedy that I have found more impressive um, in this decade, maybe. Uh, yeah, I can't think of it. Like... It is. It's. It's really an incredible movie, and the only reason it's so low on my list is because comedies are the sort of things that, because you just have such a good time watching them, you can kind of undervalue them. And I think I'm probably undervaluing it because I. I feel exactly the same on my list. Yeah. Yeah. Like I. Th- I think. I think probably there's there's other movies in my top ten that I will never watch again, um, and Mistress America I will watch once a year for the rest of my life. Um, that's all you need. That's, it, that's Patrick Rapol's re-endorsement. I will watch this once a year for the rest of my life. Right. It's it has it has reached that uh, that place for me. What, what's another movie I watch every year? I watch Jaws every year. I watch uh, um, Meet Me in St. Louis every year. Yeah. It's like one of those. Mm-hmm. Alan Partridge is weirdly becoming one of those movies for me. Oh really? Yeah. I should watch that again. <clears throat> that that did not a great comedy. That's, is that a 2015 movie? No. That's why it's not in my list, because yeah. Alan Partridge I, is another movie that uh, I watched like four, uh, I've watched like seven times at, at the video store. You know which movie I've watched seven times? It seven. Follows. Oh, It Follows. That's your number nine. You're right. How'd you guess? Um, it's one of my new all-time favorite horror films from David Robert Mitchell, and it only gets better and better, 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 better for me with each rewatch. I love the score. I love the pacing. I love the hanging out with friends quality it has to it. Um, I think people too get harped up on the logic of the creature or the rules. They forget it's kind of a mood piece, you know. It, it's it's more about mood than necessarily like, um, you know, the like somebody like Jamie Kennedy on screen telling you about what the rules are of. You know this creature, this entity coming for these characters. It's one. It's one of the things that almost. Uh, and there's a lot of things that has in common with uh, Craven's Nightmare on Elm Street, but like one of the thing, the sort of by the time they get to the climax, they've sort of just decided to go really fuzzy on the rules of the entity. Yeah, everybody's like, "Why are they going to the pool? What's the deal with the pool?" That's an idea. They had. Why didn't we? Yeah. Like, we haven't tried electrocuting them. Maybe we should electrocute them. Right. You know, like, that makes sense to me. Like, if you, you brainstorm you, as a kid, too. Right, yeah. Well, not as a kid, but as a teenager, you know. And I mean, that's if I was in that situation now, like, and I was desperate enough, I'd probably be like, well, we got to try something. What about lighting it on fire? How do we do that? Uh, I don't know how we do that. What do we, and what I, do we I, like I, I like the idea of, you know, it's really simplistic, but I like the idea of water as a motif. And, you know, it starts off introducing her character in, you know, waiting in her nice, comfortable pool in the backyard of her home. And just, you know, swimming comfortably and just enjoying herself. And then, contrast to that, then the next thing, you know, it's like, you've all grown up. And you're going to, to the pool now and there's all this chaos happening around you. Um, so it's like an interesting contrast with the different pool 
moments in this film that I find really interesting. So whenever people are like really dismissive of that, oh, why do they go to the pool? The second pool sequence. I don't know. I just I I, it I go works. with it. Yeah, I, I don't think it, that's a problem with it at all. I think it's, it's a very lyrical film too. Yeah. It's, it's there's there's a lot that's just attractive as an art film about it. And it's I think we've talked about this before, like the whole notion of art films in horror drag. Um, I, I think this probably is more a, a traditional horror film, but it has a lot of non horror elements that really right. make it quite refreshing. Um, I don't. For me, the only thing I ever can point to anymore that I'm not crazy about with it, it's not the rules. It's actually just. It's actually the the look of the mutilated girl's body on the beach at the beginning. Oh, really? That's interesting. Because so, everybody so, always has a visceral reaction to. Like I've shown this movie to three different people, and every single time they they like they they gasp. It feels like it's from another film to me. Like it hmm. it, it feels like so like much like an Evil Dead kind of like outrageous mutilated horror thing, and nothing else in it follows really makes me think of that. It, it, it's. I mean, everyone has some. Like, if they're gonna nitpick, you know, that's my nitpick. But it's not. It's not like a deal breaker. It's like one shot. I think. Yeah. You know. Yeah, I think. I think. Like, I, I agree with you. I think it would be more fitting in the tone of the movie if there was a more sort of somber, like, if if it felt more sad when you found saw her corpse. The cut to or her. If corpse. you don't even show it. Yeah, yeah. but um, I think that is effective as far as you have to establish the danger. Oh yeah, it and also it. and it also it is that in your the first the, the first time you watch it and you don't know what is happening. Right, right, right. That that makes you that puts so many questions in your head. Is like, well, what was she running from? What what yeah, could do yeah. that? You know, and yeah, you're right. I don't think it fits quite as well. But I think uh, as a at a first time viewing, that 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 sets it up better, uh, more effectively than yeah. Well, you could also you could also say like the Cronenbergian moment of. You know the mother <laughs> on top of her son and semen on her hands is kind of out of left field, but right. Well, I thought that was really effective. Yeah, I thought, and I, I felt like that action wouldn't result in the mangled. Well, maybe it would, but ma- the mangled girl body at the beginning. I mean, it just. I think it set my expectations for like a different kind of film that I was like less excited about, and then. And then my problems were solved with the very next scene where it becomes something else. It becomes, it becomes yeah, yeah, yeah. the American sleepover, basically. Sure. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> which, <laughs> I, well, but, which I adore as well. So. Yeah. Yeah, well, I, I mean, two of my very favorite films ever are Blue Velvet and Halloween. And it makes me think of that neighborhood so much. Like, that both of them, like that small-town Americana. And I yeah. grew up in a neighborhood almost exactly like those. So. Yeah, it felt so familiar. Like Well, you the lived houses, in Michigan while they were filming it. Yeah. The, the houses, If I think it was filmed in, like... I want to say Farmington Hills, Michigan, and it, at some point I'm even thinking of uh, checking out the neighborhood that it was filmed in, just for the heck yeah. of it. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's that 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 town just felt so familiar, and like the cars on the street, mm-hmm. it was like, oh my god, it's, it's it, what? But and you know, I know people have asked like, what's the deal with her seashell Kindle thing, and you know, what era is this taking place in? I just go with it rather than question it so much. I just I don't I don't see it as a flaw. I just see it as like a, a an interesting choice that Same. sort of complements yeah. the mood of the movie. So yeah, well, it's funny because it takes. I mean, the the hanging out quality of of Myth of the American Sleepover and just runs with it like in in a horror context. I think that's what I like most about it. It's not even that I like the scariness of it, although I do think it's quite scary in places. But I like. The atmosphere when it's like, you know, I mean, I think you've talked about this on the show before, like a lot of horror films 
are kind of almost more like teen sex comedies that then run into the horror movie. I think yeah, they yeah. talk about like the slasher formula. And I think that it's interesting that it's like, yeah, it's like an indie, it's, it's, it's almost like, um, like we're probably gonna be talking about two doors, Nicole, like it's almost closer to that feel that's interrupted by horror. Right. Um, yeah, no, that's exactly how I felt watching two doors. Nicole. I was like, I guess this is my jam. These types of movies. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I felt like as, as someone that was kind of like, appreciating but kind of on the outside of the whole Babadook kind of thing I felt like a lot more at home with like watching It Follows kind of be uh, celebrated to the heavens the way it was because yeah. I, mean, I, I, I get it with that one. I, I always wonder if the people who if people who aren't as into It Follows are the ones who love Babadook so much because they feel they feel very different in the in the way that the Babadook feels very much like it is about a yes. and it, everything is a metaphor for A. Yeah, yeah. and it, Grief. It, feel, Grief. it feels very schematic. And I think that movie is really good. Oh, sure. But it definitely feels like very schematic to make a point where yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it follows feels way looser and more yeah, like like you said, the lyrical is a good word yeah. for it. Well, it's also kind of like the metaphor that everyone thinks. Oh, it's about sexually transmitted disease. Like it's the least interesting about least interesting thing about it because like Cronenberg's done that like what like five times already. Right. Like, it's not. It's not. <laughs> yeah. It's not. You know, it doesn't need to be about that for me to like it. What I don't do need you, it to mean anything. <laughs> what, uh, what else do you like, Bill? What's your number nine? The Forbidden Room, uh, Guy Madden and Evan uh, Johnson's uh, film. Uh, I wanted to see this so bad, and I didn't get a I chance I feel to. like I would pay 100 bucks for you to be able to see it tomorrow on the big <laughs> screen. Uh, you should see it, though. It's really... it's. I went into it, like, I was not, like, a big guy. Like, I, guy Madden was someone I always respected. Like, he was, like, this original voice. He's been, you know, at it since, what, like, 1988 was the uh, Nelson uh, Gimli Hospital. Like, he's, he's like, an uncompromising, idiosyncratic auteur. Like, you know, totally respect him. Never really loved his stuff that much. Uh, so I saw this kind of, like, while I was in New York for the New York Film Festival, kind of not sure what to expect from it. And I think it's one of the most astonishing things I've seen in a theater in this decade, for sure. Um, it's just like this series of insane stories within stories within stories. Um, I started looking into how it came to be, and I guess it was like in Paris and Montreal, he started doing these three-week sessions where he's doing a short film a day in public for like the purposes of like museum installations, but they were like meant to be evoking films that were like either rumored to have existed once like in the turn of the century or like they disappeared or maybe they never existed like these like odd early 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 days of film kind of ideas and then like just so they're shot like they're shot digitally but they look like they're using the technology of like the early states of cinema kind of techniques and um like an antique film stock even though it's all digitally processed um it just it's but it's what's interesting about it is that most films I see that are like radical uh they're they're either very earnest or they're very disturbing or they're very serious. This is just very silly. Um like this has like finger snapping contests and it I mean it's a film with like, you know, Udo Kier having brain surgery to cure his obsession with uh with asses after Sparks have sung a song about women's derrieres. Like it's just it's silly, and it's definitely like made for like a limited audience. But that limited audience, it's it almost feels like like if midnight movies still existed, like the era of like post Eraserhead, you know, where things like Forbidden Zone, you know, would come in, or like all these things trying to be the new Rocky Horror. It feels like it should have been made to live in that era because no one's going to see it on the big screen, and that's really where you should see it. 
because um, it's just an overwhelming assault of images and dumb gags and it's it's poetic and it's crazy but i don't know like I and mean, Jim, you saw it like on like the small screen. I mean, you know, like I mean, it's still like an overwhelming rush of things, regardless of how you see it. But it's like I don't know. I, it's it's definitely one that like kind of caught me off guard at how much I loved it because I was not like going into it like with any big, you know, more than just like average res- level of respect for Guy Madden. Um, but yeah, I, that's my number nine, Forbidden Room. It's worth checking out. I that's I wanted to see this so bad because I wanted to access I wanted an access point to Guy Madden for the longest time because I haven't seen any of his films and they always feel like they'll be a bit of work. <laughs> they always it's a bit of work. Yeah, yeah, this work. is this is a demanding film, I would say. Oh, Forbidden like, it's, Room it's, is as well because that feels so say, yeah. enter, that seems so like entertaining to me. The, it's it's you'll see it's it's entertaining, but it's also it's funny because it's like because it's so vignette driven. Like, you don't need to pay attention for long before the thing you're following is something else. But at the same time, it's like if you're trying to follow it all, it's going to feel like a train of things at you for, like, two hours. Sure. So oh, it's it, a long it can, one. It's, it could be exhausting for the for most viewers, I would say. Like, sure. it's definitely not a film I could recommend casually. Like, <laughs> it, it feels like, yeah, it, it feels like an assault. But it's, it's a silly, beautiful assault. <laughs> That's awesome. I got to... We have all of his movies. I think we have every single one of his movies that's been released on DVD. I just picked up my, my, Winni- my Winnipeg on Criterion, so I'll get to more of his work. Yeah, I got to check. Yeah, if you have Brand Upon the Brain at the store, that might be a good sampler for the kind of thing he we does. We do. I think he did what, is it like the saddest music in the world? Yeah. Is it, yeah. Isabella Rossellini? Everybody that's loves the that most, one. That's the most like approachable one. Like If you want to try Guy Madden, maybe try there, but... I mean, all of his stuff is pretty, like, I mean, it's, it's defiantly cult movie material. Like, sure. You, he's not going to cross over, but, I mean, you know, it's great that there's still people like him that are fighting the good fight. Yeah, yeah. He, <laughs> yeah, he sounds awesome. I just, I just got to get off my ass and see one of them. Yeah. Um, my number eight was It Follows. <gasps> okay. um, I think in addition to all the things we've talked about, um, I don't have a rock, because, again, it's, it's not that kind of movie, but I don't have a rock hard theory about like what it represents metaphorically. Um, but one thing I really, really, really love about the film is the, the presence of male gaze everywhere. Um, you talked about like her peacefully swimming in her pool at home, but that's true. There's even there, there's two guys, those two creepy little kids are staring at her and like, and ogling her body. I see. And they, and they ogle her body, you know, through her window later. And, She's oh, looking yeah. at herself in the mirror, and there is mm-hmm. – it feels like a movie about that point uh, when you are a teenage uh, girl, and you are just like, well, I guess I'm in it now. <laughs> like, I don't – I, I this, there could be good things about it. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm frightened of this, but whether or not I want to, I'm fucking in it, and I'm going to be defined by my sexuality and the choices I make sexually, um, and those are going to define me whether I want to or not. Uh, and I, I'm going to make mistakes and those are going to fuck me over in ways that they won't fuck over other, you know, they won't fuck over men. And like, it feels like a really good, um, I wouldn't say like essay. Cause again, it doesn't feel that it doesn't feel that strictly metaphorical, but it, it there is a really good survey of the ways that male gaze affects uh, a teenage girl and her burgeoning sexuality um, throughout the whole movie. And that adds to 
the feeling of being watched is, you know, that's the paranoia. That's the 360 camera moves where you're scanning the horizon looking for someone to be watching her. The parent, you know. I love that shot. So, like, the way that, the way that those, that that, uh, that thematic material in the film sort of ties into the scares of it is really pleasing and effective in a way that most horror films of any kind have a lot of, they can be about something and they could be scary, but it's really hard to make a movie that's scary in a specific way about something, <laughs> you know, it's, <laughs> it's, it's really like, cause uh, it's, and it's not jump scares. The movie, you know, it's, it's like, you can, if you want to go really eggheady, you can say, well, clearly Halloween is about blank and it's about suburban, you know, it's I about, I think I did. White I sub- wrote a paper for my English yeah, class and absolutely <laughs> like, you know, you know because that. you know, but, like, that isn't what it feels like when you're watching a Halloween. When you're watching a Halloween, you're not like, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. yes, how I fled to suburbia as a white person. Like, <laughs> like, the horror coming home. Like, that's not what it actually feels like to watch that movie. When you're watching that movie, you're like, Jesus Christ, Annie, turn around! <laughs> you know? Much, yeah. Um, and the way that I was scared for her and I was also felt creeped out and and paranoid for her in a way that directly ties into that feeling of the male gaze and it's really really cool and even at the end it's like i guess i'm with him because he saved me like you know they're they're together but what does that mean you know they're the the last shot of the movie cast doubt on their whole relationship and it's and i think probably if you live in <laughs> you live in the world with the patriarchy um there's probably just and you're aware of that sort of thing. Like there's probably just going to be doubt on all your relationships because there's this, because you're, there's a uneven balance between there's a, un, there's an uneven power dynamic between you. And I think the way that that is totally inescapable. Are, are you, I'm wondering look, about the guy in the alley. Yeah, Jim just looked out to my alley to see if the guy is smoking <laughs> and watching us speaking apparently walking, walking towards us. Yeah, he is not. <laughs> um, I think that is a really cool aspect of this movie. So, like, when it has all of those things going on for it, the whole, eh, why would they think to go to a pool? It's like, yeah, who gives a fuck? Like, this movie's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> like, it works for me. <laughs> so, yeah, that's my number eight. It follows. Uh, oh, my God. Number Jim. eight is the newest entry, the biggest surprise of the year for me. Um, <laughs> the newest entry the what? Oh, wait. It wasn't. I don't think I listed as my big surprise when we did our categories, but... <coughs> Dope! You're number eight. No, it's not. No. It is The Forbidden Room. Okay. Oh. It is the craziest movie I've ever seen. <laughs> is it? Is it that hands down? No, it might no be. qualifiers? The Forbidden Zone might be yeah. the second craziest <laughs> movie I've ever seen. Um, I don't know what to make of this movie. I don't know how to review it. I don't know how to describe it. I don't know what to say about it. Um, Bill did a great job. <laughs> and uh, I watched this while I was half awake, half asleep. It felt like I was experiencing a fever dream come to life. Um, it starts off with like an Enter the Void kind of credit sequence, which made me very happy. Really? Yeah. Interesting. It made me very happy. Um, and then I was like, okay, you know, about 10, even 10 to 15 minutes in, I'm like, what is this reminding me of? What is this reminding me of? The flashback with it? Because I had the same question when we were doing the Michael Curtiz episode when Sergio was talking about another movie. What is the movie that I can't think of that I saw this year where it's a flashback within a flashback within a flashback within a flashback? Did or you see a, the Saragossa manuscript? Or? No, it's The Locket. The it's Locket. A, it's a movie called The Locket, and I want to say Robert Mitchum is in it. But it's literally 
a person will walk into a room, and then suddenly the ca- like the camera will zoom into this person, and then you get to learn about their backstory, about what 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 role they have in the storyline, and what they were doing, you know, two days before. And this movie really sort of takes that and turns it into like a David Wayne surrealist, absurdist, insane, crazy comedy. Um, and in ways that I don't even know, it, like part of me wanted to sort of lump it into um, um, the guy who did Rubber and Wrong and stuff, uh-huh. but Quentin it's du- Dupont or yeah, Dupont yeah, or Quentin Dupont, but it's way better and way funnier and way more inventive and way visually more stunning. Have you seen other Guy Madden movies? No. Okay. So this was my first experience, and I laughed three or four times harder. At, you know, I mean, yeah, Mistress America is a better comedy, I guess, but I laughed so hard at certain parts because <laughs> I didn't know what to make of it. I was just like, what the fuck is that? What is going on? Who thought of this? What drugs is this guy taking? I was just like, I, I, I actually, you know, had to pause at a couple points and Facebook message Bill. I'm like, what the, what, what happening? It's funny, like that film. I, I should, I should, I don't know if I should need to say this, but one of the two directors of photography um, on the Forbidden Room is my friend Ben Kasalki from college, um, who's be uh, who's been working uh, as a he's, he's worked on a lot of big films now. I guess Safety Not Guaranteed and um, some Guy Madden stuff and um, all the Lynn Shelton stuff like Hump Day and uh, Your Sister Sister. Anyway, he shot that film. Uh, him and one other person. He shot these shots that were done in. Um, in Paris. Um, but what it reminded me of is like student film comedies that are like so inside jokey and specific and odd. Yeah. No, but, but like, that's what it reminded me of. Maybe because I associate him with film school, but like <laughs> the, um, just like, what if we just have people fighting with bladders? Wouldn't that be the most ridiculous thing ever? And just like, let's shoot it. Like, and it's like, it, it's like that kind of like, Monty Python it, maybe a little. Yeah. Like, like the idiosyncratic, syncratic absurdity of it like the kind of thing that would like only make like nine out of 90 people laugh but those people will be laughing really hard like and that kind of that kind of sensibility and i was laughing very hard i love the aesthetic of this so much like it, it does have like the you know the a trip to the moon or very 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 old you know i don't i don't know what kind of like the 30s or 40s kind of aesthetic to it at times wait, wait. trip to the moon is 1800s okay, 1800s or whatever is Maybe it before. 1800s or is it the 30s or 40s wait 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 before okay. i don't know like yeah, i don't it's, it's closer to trip to the moon yeah yeah it's it's closer to that it's kind of feel i mean there's silent film homages and there's a really interesting like there's just subplot after so i don't know it it's a kaleidoscope. Uh-huh. It's a, it, it's a kaleidoscopic experience. If I was doing acid, I don't know if it'd be good to watch this or not, but um, I am so mad. This played for like a week at the music box. And mm-hmm. I, I missed it. it. I was really uh, bummed. Me too. But I'm so glad I watched it. It is so weird. Hopefully they start and, doing midnight movies again. That'd be should... nice. <laughs> this, this is like, yeah, yeah this, this is definitely, this could be midnight cult movie. Uh, a plus material <laughs> It's profoundly strange and kind of moving in its strangeness. Like I found myself like strangely moved by how audaciously weird it was. Yeah. I was like, I, who would come up with this movie? But it's so it, because it felt so personal, it moved you. Yeah, that's it. That's exactly it. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Wow. 
I'm I'm only madder at myself for having not seen it. Are you maddened? I'm maddened. I am in maddened. <laughs> hey, Bill. Yeah. What is your number eight? My number eight is is actually one that uh, I almost wasn't able to include because I didn't know if it was going to get released in America this year. Um, and it's pretty obscure, but it's a film called The Fool by uh, Yuri uh, – I might be mispronouncing it – Yuri Baikov. Um, I saw it, I guess, last January uh, back-to-back with White God, which is more famous, uh, at the um, New Director's New Films series at Film Society of Lincoln Center. Uh, it's a Russian film – uh, about a young handyman who goes out in the middle of the night in a small town uh, for a routine repair, and he discovers that, I don't know if this is a spoiler or not, but he discovers that there's like a fatal kind of crack in the foundation of the building, uh, like this tenement building that he's visiting, full of all these really like jerky people. But like he notices that like any minute, the entire building could fall at any second and like kill all these people, this entire building full of people. So he goes out into the middle of the night trying to find somebody that will give him the authority to evacuate this building. And it basically becomes like this nightmare journey through like the world of corrupt local politicians in this small Russian town. Um, I've seen it compared to like man against the system kind of parables like Frank Capra and um, even like some of the paranoia, like seventies thrillers of like an Alan Pakula, like uh, all the president's men or, you know, like things like that. Like, uh, but, but it's, it's also kind of like a like a black comedy the way like certain kind of I know this is kind of like an esoteric reference like certain like Romanian comedies like the uh, you know like the death of Mr. Olaresco but like you know the comedy of like bureaucracy and like the nightmare of it I don't know if it's quite like fair to call it Kafka but like it, but it's but it's an interesting sleeper of a film and I you know it's a kind of film that like you know because it like it shows Russia in a bad light it's like you know I mean in Putin like it, it barely like nobody goes to see it in Russia they don't give a shit about that kind of film like and here it might be like too um what's the word like it might just be like too like far from like American mainstream interests for like someone to pick it up but um, it did get a distributor like a couple of months ago I think Olive Films is putting it on DVD next year or this year i guess but it played limitedly in new york after you know it got picked up it's it's worth checking out for like you know listeners of yours that are into like like kind of gripping thriller dramas like you know it's it's a russian film like it's not very special effects or like you know like transgressive it's just kind of like a character driven thing but it's really good um and you know totally off the radar a lot of people it didn't like show up on any list that i saw so i felt like and this is a good film. I should at least mention it. So. Sounds a little That's... bit like uh, the 2014 Leviathan. Oh yeah, I, you know I didn't see that. Okay, the, the Russian film. Yeah, yeah, because that I, is I, it's gripping. It's about the bureaucracy and it's character driven and it's a little bleak and it's sort of inside. Yeah, the only Leviathan I saw was the one with the fish on the right. The 2013 <laughs> Leviathan. <laughs> It sounds it sounds nothing like that, which is yeah. really the only thing I can say that makes me not interested. The only Leviathan you need is the one with Daniel Stern. Yeah, yeah. Well, hopefully, hopefully next year there'll be another Leviathan to make it really confusing. Oh but man, that'd, that'd be, be great. great. Yeah, yeah. Um, I gotta I gotta tell I gotta tell Jeff to order this if it's coming out on Olive. Yeah, sounds I didn't really see good. a pre-order for it yet, but it's it's really it's really good. Okay, my number seven is. My number eight. It's the Hateful Eight. It is a... Okay, so I have a... I have a theory about Hateful Eight. Um, 
it's not really necessarily a theory because it's not predicated on believing that Tarantino believes what I believe about the film. <laughs> um, because I think the film works this way either way. But okay. I've not seen anyone else note this, so I might just be a crazy person. I think Hateful Eight is Tarantino's Lars von Trier movie, his funny games, um, his sort of sort – of, he's rubbing the audience's face in the nastiness of his films without giving them the feel-good endings that well, they get. Well, I said when we walked out that it reminded me of his Dogville. Like it yeah. Was, it was his I, Dogville a little bit. Yeah. Like – so to me, Hateful Eight is – so Hateful Eight is a murder mystery. It is sort of. It is a Agatha Christie sort of a thing where um, I guess the character you could maybe basically mostly be following for most of it is Samuel L. Jackson. And you're sort of with him and Kurt Russell and they're trying to figure out who in this sort of haberdashery, um, this, this sort of general store, who there uh, is who they say they are and who isn't because something is just not quite right. Um, and all the characters have these secrets and they're all sort of turned against each other. Um, and it's about who do you trust? And that is also the game it plays with the audience because the audience is trying to figure out who they're going to root for. Um, and you first you think, well, Samuel Jackson, of course, because Samuel Jackson, he's badass. Um, Samuel Jackson, he meets all these people calling him the N-word, so clearly he's the hero because he is the black man who has to deal with all these white people who are you know, being racist against him. So you can root for him, except he's a horrible, horrible human being. The, the One of the first things he does is just deck um, Jennifer Jason Lee right in the fucking face. Um, he's violent. He's nasty. He's mean-spirited. Um, he only gets so more and more throughout the film. So then you think, well, you know what? This is a Tarantino movie. Uh, Jennifer Jason Lee. I bet she has some trick up her sleeve. She's, you know, she's the woman. She's the only woman in the movie. She's surrounded by all these men who are treating her like a piece of shit because she's a woman. Yeah. Um, she's going to have some trick up her sleeve. She's yeah. actually really cool. She, this whole movie is going to be about the men turning on each other and about how women is actually the, the victorious because, you know, she's above all that or whatever. Except she's fucking racist and horrible and you can't trust her and she's just as nasty as anyone else in the movie and she does horrible things um, and she's not a likable character. The movie goes on like this presenting people who seem like you're not actually pointing out who's the murderer, you're pointing out who isn't the murderer and the answer is nothing. There is no right answer. Everyone in this movie is terrible and there's no one to root for and by the end of it you have a lynching happen, and it's not a. It is not Eli Roth blasting Hitler in the face with a machine gun. It is not a feel-good sort of a thing. It is. It's not cathartic. It at is all. ugly and horrible and upsetting, um, and it, it's so unlike a Tarantino movie that even as the final thirty seconds of the movie were happening, I was like, "Oh, there's going to be some. She's going to do something. It's not. This not really going to happen the way I think it's about going to happen." And no, it happens it, – it makes you watch what happens and it makes you deal with it. And basically he is it – is, it is the single greatest funny games kind of movie where it's – or, you know, I, I've heard film crit Hulk wrote a good argument about the, the Kingsman being this kind of movie. These movies that sort of show you violence and then make you grapple with it and make you ask why you want to see this in the first place. And I think this is the single best one of those movies I've ever seen because 
it's you go into funny games, you're not expecting a cool thriller. Maybe some people when like the American Funny Games when that had a bit of a wider release, some people were like, "All right, this is going to be this is going to be some scary movie about two crazy people, you know, like who are terrorizing a family." And they just thought it was a straight hit thriller. They didn't know what the game of that movie was. But you, you see a Lars von Trier movie, you know he's running a game on you. You know he's fucking with your head, um, and that can still be rewarding. You, know, you see a Michael Haneke movie, you know he's fucking with your head. You do not expect Tarantino to fuck with your head in that way. Um, and I think I and so this movie to me, the turn I had where I realized that I was making all of these mental leaps to justify rooting for one character over another. There were points in this movie where I was like, well, Samuel Jackson's badass. Of course, he can act that way because he's being everyone's being racist to him. So he can do that. But no, that's not justification for how terrible he is. Oh, yeah, Jennifer Jason Lee, she's cool, but you know, that's you know, she's she's terrible, but you know, she has a reason to act like that, you know? No, that's not a justification. There is no Django in this movie. There there is no Inglorious Bastards in this movie. Um so Shosana uh in you know in Inglorious Bastards, there's no character like that in the movie. But because you are a human being who's trying to build a narrative, and because you think you know what a Tarantino movie is, you're trying to find that person. And come up with excuses for each one of them. Uh, there's times that I thought, like, well, um, Tim Roth, his character seems logical. The things he says about, you know, impassioned justice not being justice, like, that's really cool. Like, maybe he is it. Or, like, Michael Madsen's not harming anyone. He's not being creepy or provoking anyone. He's sort of keeping to himself. Maybe he's the moral center of the movie. Like, I went through every single goddamn character other than, like, the Civil War general, like the Confederate general or Walton Goggins. <laughs> The Bruce Stern, yeah. Walton um, well, Goggins is likable, but you never think he's a good guy because he's sort of the comedic foil to Samuel Jackson. Samuel Jackson knows everything, and Walton Goggins knows nothing, and they make a great team. Uh, yeah, the Bruce Stern character, I never thought. But other than that, I went through mental gymnastics trying to justify loving every single one of those characters, and what I came away with was I shouldn't like any of them. And just because it's a Tarantino fucking movie, and they have snappy dialogue, and they're, they're say cool things... And you know, and they're badass. That doesn't mean that they're good people. Um, they're hateful people, right? right. Yeah, he tells you <laughs> right up front. Like yeah. the first thing you see of Samuel Jackson, he just has three corpses. Like yeah. this isn't a nice guy. This isn't a decent guy. Um, so the movie, I think, does a really good job because it is legitimately exciting as a thriller and, and as a Agatha Christie movie and as a Reservoir Dogs riff and as a thing riff riff. Like, it is legitimately exciting in in a way that most of these kinds of movies are not, because they're kind of art films, first and foremost. Um, I think it's, again, I kind of prefer Tarantino when he's in crowd-pleasing mode. I, don't, I wouldn't put this up as, like, my favorite of his films, but I think it's the most interesting movie, um, and I think it has the most going on. And I do think this is not unprecedented. I think he started flirting with this with, you know... Um, Death Proof is so cartoonish that when they just kick the shit out of him and he's crying and they just smash his face in and like all high five, like it's so cartoonish that you're like, well, yeah, that's fine. You don't, it's not like, oh, look how dark the revenge is, you know, but like Inglorious Bastards, them carving the swastika in his head, it feels a little justified because they're afraid he might go on to live a normal life, but it's still like beyond the pale and really upsetting, sort of. Um, And, and I. Oh, so I was gonna say a lot of his, a lot of his post Jackie Brown stuff is like 
predicated on feel good revenge that right. you're talking about. Yeah. Right. But and he he has started to toy with that a little bit, I think, with Inglorious Bastards. And then Django, I think he does a really interesting I mean, I talked about that in two thousand twelve, end of the year, because that was my favorite movie of that year. And I talked about how I think he is doing an essay about uh his relationship with you know, black culture, because if, if you look at the Christoph Waltz role as him, you know... I can see that. There is, as the director to Django being the actor, you know, him giving him all the tools he needs to be badass, but, like, ultimately, Django's need to reject him in order to do the right thing. Like, I think he does more interesting things in his films than people give him credit for, because he just comes off as, like, a hyperactive pitchman, <laughs> pitchman in interviews and stuff. <laughs> um, I think the the chief... The, I think the number one clue that Tarantino's up to something fucking weird is that he makes this super crazy 70 millimeter widescreen movie and sets it entirely indoors in one location. Like that shit's insane. Even when before they get there, all the shit, all the shots inside the stagecoach is just, you know, it's it's not a bad looking movie at all. It's a really good looking movie, and it's but. I think I think it's kind of hilarious how many people are talking about like what a wonderful experience it was to see in 70 millimeter because. There's certain shots where the blocking is really cool because you see multiple people in the frame at the same time and you're sort of suspicious of all of them and it sort of belies power dynamics in that way. But I think a lot of the film, like, shit, you could have shot it on 16mm. You could have shot it digitally. It wouldn't have changed the way the film feels. Um, and I think that's sort of maybe the first clue that, like, he's into some weird fucking shit. <laughs> like, he's he's messing with your expectations. His... His big epic seventy millimeter Ben Hur Western is all indoors. Like he's not, he's playing with your head, and I think, I think that is what makes this movie so amazing um, and and gratifying, and also hard to watch. And I think I completely understand why people reject it um, because he doesn't give them those easy feel good endings that they have come to expect. Um, it's so this movie is so much thornier than all that. I think it's a fascinating film in that way, and not the sort of thing I expected from him, but. Uh, kind of just yep. proves again, like he he can do anything, <laughs> whether or not he intended it. Oh, I'm sorry, reaction, go ahead. How was the audience reaction when you saw it in the theater? Um, hysterical laughter, uh, uncomfortable laughter as the N, as the use of the N word kept getting more and more pervasive and less like punchliney. Um, mm-hmm. things got like felt a little more ugly. The 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 scene in the roadshow version right before the intermission is so beyond oh, yeah. the pale. It's like the worst thing Samuel L. Jackson does, and it's ambiguous whether or not he actually did it or is just saying it sure. to torment someone. But either way, it's a horrible. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's a horrible thing. That kind of like people were laughing at the audacity of it, but at the same time, you could feel the room had kind of turned, and it was a full full theater. It's like a five hundred person theater, and it was completely packed. And yeah. at that point, the room had turned. And there's still, you know, laughter. There's still good lines. There's still, like, everything Walton Goggins does is hilarious. So it it doesn't, it, again, like, the reason I think it's so successful is it doesn't clue you in that you're not supposed to be applauding and laughing. It sort of lets you realize that as your own, as, as on your own by slowly taking away the things. Um, and, yeah, by the end of it, I felt like people had sort of, there was not much applause. Uh, which there normally is at the end of a crowded Tarantino movie on opening weekend. There was not much like, yeah, it was, I felt like people had been put off by it or they felt that they had had the rug pulled out from under them. And I think that was totally intentional. 
Or and even if it wasn't intentional, that's the way it worked for me. So that's why it's like my seventh favorite movie of the year. Yeah, the audience I saw it with was largely hostile towards it. I saw it on Christmas. Yeah. Um, and uh, there's a lot of people sleeping around me during the first half after a certain point. Yeah. And uh, some people didn't. Some people didn't come back from intermission. <laughs> Uh, but it's interesting because it's the first time I've seen a Tarantino film that didn't really connect right? Uh, with, a, with at least with the, the theater that I saw it in. It's an interesting film. I need to see it again. I, I, I liked it, but uh, I, I don't know that I got – it didn't transport me the way his, some of his other films have, for sure, on, on first viewing. Yeah, I, mean, I, and I wouldn't say that it, this is – I like this as much as Pulp Fiction or Jackie Brown or Django, but I think it's probably his most interesting movie. Yeah, it's definitely interesting. I mean, I, I would give it that. And I, I think it's ultimately a good film also. Like, I, I, I have some reservations that probably will be settled on the next time I see it. But, um, yeah. My number seven is Mistress America. Yeah? I'll leave it at that. Oh. Okay, well, yeah, we've <laughs> talked that movie up quite a bit. We sure have. Yeah. And everything we've said has been said. Oh, it's wonderful. Yeah. It is. That's the one I always recommend to people. And I always get people coming back being like, no, I didn't like it that much. But Me, Earl, and the Dying Girl, have you seen that one? That's, that's oh, a lot yes. of the reaction. But I got, I, got one, I got one woman who was like, I didn't know it was a Noah Baumbach movie. I love Noah Baumbach. And I'm Aww. like, well, it's great, right? She's like, oh, it was incredible. And me and her, we bonded over Noah Baumbach. Uh, that's but oh, I, I, I certainly got a lot of people being like, really? I like, I like parts of Me, and Earl, and the Dying Girl, but yeah. not, not as a whole. It's It's... The other, that's the other thing about Mistress America. It's more sophisticated yeah. than we have than we have come to expect from comedies. Yeah. Oh no, totally. Yeah. So that's your number. Uh, what's your number seven, uh, Bill? My number seven uh, is one that I saw pretty like only a couple weeks ago, and I went into it kind of not even expecting. I was kind of watching it just to be respectful because I'd heard it was good, but it didn't seem like something I would like that much. But I loved it. It's called uh, Songs from the North. Uh, it's by a woman named Soon Mi Yu, who's, I think, from Connecticut. But it's about uh, her fascination. Like, she had this kind of fascination with North Korea and wanting to understand it better. And so she did several trips to North Korea. And where Korea is she herself. from? This, she's from, I think, from Connecticut. Okay. But so she went there several times over the years, like, with a camera and filmed it. And so it's like a mix of, like footage from her travels within North Korea intercut with interviews, propaganda footage. And it's like, in a way it's, it's kind of like, it's not like as ambitious as heart of a dog, but it's like the same kind of like essay film style documentary where it's like a mix of different things that kind of create this sense of a strange fantasy world. Um, so it doesn't quite play like anti North Korea propaganda because on some levels, people seem really happy, but they also seem very nervous. Um, like, school children will, will come up to her in a group and, like, be kind of, like, friendly and women. But then they, like, they kind of, like, reform. It's an odd thing. Like, they reform, like, ducklings in, like, a little school of, of like, in a way that, the, like, they, when they walk away from her again. Like, it's, it's, and there's, like, people walking around at night in these parks in this wide shot. And uh, the voiceover will tell you something like how... Uh, you know, it's like this kind of like, like essentially like paranoid kind of environment where nobody really kind of connects. And it's like visually illustrated with like this, this, this wide shot of like these people all 
kind of walking by themselves and not interacting. It's 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 unusual and kind of moving in a way that I was not expecting. Um, so I don't know. Uh, it's I, you can get it on Amazon Instant as a rental. It's not something that I know a lot of people have seen, but it's it's kind of beautiful and mysterious. And like, I don't know that much about North Korea other than what we're kind of told in the media and like, they're an enemy of our country. So you only kind of get one side of it. Like there's a scene in this film where they go to this like atrocity museum and they talk about all things Americans did to Koreans in the Korean war, like these horrific things. And you can't tell it's ambiguous, like whether or not like it's just one more lie they're being told or if we're suppressing it, but it's, I don't know. It's it's a thought-provoking film that's also quite beautiful. I didn't really expect it to be as, as affecting as it was. And so, uh, it's, yeah, Songs from the North. Uh, if it sounds like something that you wouldn't hate, you should check that's it out. A, that sounds really interesting. Yeah. Um, my number six is, yeah. is, is Carol. Um, it's a... It's a really interesting – Carol's a really interesting movie. I feel a lot about it the same way I do about Spotlight in that um, it almost feels a little – like in in certain ways it, I felt underwhelmed by – and underwhelmed but at the same time uh, impressed by how willing it was to not be an issue movie. It doesn't – like there is a looming threat of a court case over the custody of her kids that – in a lesser Oscar bait kind of a movie, that would be the movie, you know, that would be free held. The free held version of this would be like their court case to be like, I am still a good mother, even though I love women, you know, even Kate Blanchett's speech at one point is very reserved. It's not sort of grandiose. Right. There's, and there's a reserved quality to the whole thing that in some ways it's, it's surprising, but also pleasing that this movie has taken so many people by storm because it doesn't seem like the obvious uh, sort of must talk about, you know, conversation piece movie that you would think. Cause it, it's mostly just a very well-made romance between these two women and the sort of subtle suppression they have to do and the way it comes out and the, the things that aren't said between them, but also to people who know what's going on with them. There's, there's a lot of nice things about that. Um, it's, which is all good. The thing that pushes it over the edge. And I suspect from a lot of like reviews and stuff I read, this is not, just true of me, though it felt super personal, which is, you know, maybe like that just speaks to how powerful this film is. Um, I just was constantly flooded by sense memory while watching this movie of what it felt like to go on vacation to the East coast, which is East. Like I, I grew up mostly in Texas. So I associated snow with going to New Jersey uh, in the winter. I associated snow with, specifically like three houses that my cousins lived in, you know, um, there's a lot of images in this, like the way that the snow light, you know, the, the light bouncing off the snow is impossibly bright through windows, the way that everything is framed through windows, the way like just curtains move the way that, uh, you know, there are shots of people's reflections in car windows and, um, they, you know, it's, it's not, it's not an uncommon, uh, uh, aesthetic tactic for a period piece to look like an old photograph, but I think this does just that better than anything I've seen since maybe McCabe and Mrs. Miller. Like it's just more thorough in it's feeling like a, a an old photograph, and part of that is the you know the grainy sixteen millimeter, and part of that is the slightly soft focus, um, and the way that 
the camera kind of catches people unassuming the way that, uh, you know, snapshots were before. I, I feel like there was a period, and I, you know, I'm not an expert in any of this, so I could be completely off, but I always felt to me like I would look at photos of family photos or vacation photos from like the 60s, and it would just be like people in living rooms holding bottles of beer. And then you would get to a point in like the 90s when you were looking at like family photos, and it was always people gathered around looking right at the camera and smiling. <laughs> and, but like those kind of snapshots when cameras were new and people were kind of just going crazy taking a lot of pictures of, you know, parties and stuff like that, uh, is, it feels like a lot of the way stuff is framed. And as a visual experience, it just amplified everything so much that a very simple, um, unassuming romance took on a whole other weight. Um, and I still still think it's, it's not like the most moving romance. It's not, it's, it's not, uh, revelatory in any way, but, um, I, the, the visual, uh, style of it just like push it over the edge. And I was just, it was a really intense experience for me. Cause again, I just felt like I was in New York, um, you know, in the early nineties, which is not when this movie takes place, but like, I was just brought back to those memories. And I mean, part of those memories is also that I just had an aunt who was a lesbian and everyone would just say, Oh yeah, that's aunt Maggie and her best friend, Liz. And no one would say the word lesbian and no one ever told me that she was gay. It was just something that me and my sisters had to figure out for ourselves because no one was talking about it. Like that added to that mood. And so all these things, they feel like very personal uh, feelings I have about this film. Like they feel like very specific to my past, except a lot of things I've read people have felt that same sort of aching nostalgia watching it. So I think that might just be Todd Haynes doing a really fucking good job evoking like old photographs and the feeling of memory and stuff like that. So that's why Carol is my number six. Uh, And I'm again, like shocked that has become the sort of conversation centerpiece that, and sort of end of the year hit that it has, but I'm also uh, pretty pleased with it. Cause if like that is, where that kind of movie is going, like, I'm all for it. Um, you know, it's no in the mood for love. It's it's not brief encounter. It's nothing like that. But, like, uh, what it is is very good and, and very subtle and very uh, worthy and interesting. It's pretty darn close. Well, I think that it... I think that, I mean, the reception it's getting, it reminds me a little bit of, um, I mean, what Far From Heaven got at the time also. Oh, really? But... Maybe uh, it's less. It's maybe it's less mannered and less obviously like evoking another kind of filmmaking the way that was evoking Sir. This feels like a little bit freed up from that. Right. And maybe I think maybe because it's it's an old fashioned melodrama that's coming from an impossibly hip auteur filmmaker, and it's just it it's just everything kind of aligns in the right way. And I think it's also kind of culturally like just. You know, because it, it deals with the gay thing, but in a way that would not even offend my grandmother. That's true. You know, like it, it just feels like it's everything that everyone wants in a in an art house. And it's in a way, it's almost kind of unfortunate because the backlash from some of my friends that, you know, they want Todd Haynes to be the transgressive new queer cinema. They want they want another poison at the outset. They want or another safe is what they want. OK, yeah. Um, and. For this, um, 
you know, he's no longer the writer on this project. The next project he's doing is either, I know he was on Mark Maron uh, today. Uh, he dropped it. He's talking about like a Brian Selznick graphic novel adaptation about young people. Or he's, he's also linked to like a Peggy Lee biopic that Doug Wright wrote. Oh, that'd the guy be that so Quills. good. Um, the guy that wrote Quills for Philip Kaufman. Um, so yeah, it good. could be a case where his, he's entering a new phase where That's he's... Todd Haynes biopic. He, he could he could be taking on a new phase of his um, career where he's he's the he's the prestige director taking on other people's material and making it his own. So it, in a way, it's a little bit sad for me because I like Todd Haynes, the writer, and I you know don't I mean, as much as I like when people like Steven Soderbergh or Spike Lee or whoever stop writing their own material like to make you know good solid films with a real eye. I think there's you know. I don't want Todd Haynes to not be able to work because it seems like there's long stretches of time between his projects because they're so hard to finance. I think on the other hand, it's like, you know, I, I do hope he gets to make more films that are, I, I mean, I, I love Carol to death and we'll be talking about, you know, it's, it's on my list too, spoiler alert, but like, you know, the, it, I do hope that he gets to do things that are as radical again, even if, if I'm not there or even Velvet Goldmine are like his best films. Like I want him to be still able to make things that are like difficult. Sure. <laughs> it, yeah. If, if there is one complaint you can make about Carol, it is a little too respectable. Yeah. Um, but, uh, anyway, what's your number six, Jim? My number six is James White it is easily the hardest I've cried in a movie all year. Maybe in, I don't know, since upstream color. Um, it starts out like a Lodge Kerrigan movie, particularly like Keen, because the camera is so pressed against this guy's face and following him as he's going from a bar or club outside. And that totally reminded me of, um, uh, I believe, Damian Lewis's character in uh, Lodge Kerrigan's Keen. And uh, whereas that movie covered schizophrenia so raw, and um, this one really just. Um, you know, sort of dissects a life in a very self-destructive manner. A guy who sort of accepts the fact that, like, you know what? I'm messed up, and I don't know if I can do anything about it. Like, he he does have a really strong support system, and that's something, like, most of these movies do have, like, a loner, like, a Mickey Rourke and Barfly kind of character that he's just like, I'm just going to stay in my hotel room and drink myself to death or a Nicolas Cage and leaving Las Vegas kind of a thing. But here he actually has like a, a really strong support center with a, like a really great best friend and a girl that he meets that really try their best to lift his spirits and lift him up. And it just doesn't work because this guy is so far gone. And it's mostly because he just lost his father and now his mother has cancer and he's just dealing with his addictions at the same time. This is something that I, I know all too well from different uh, angles, but still, I, uh, I, I couldn't get over how much I identified with this movie and how certain scenes felt so real and not flashy at all. I mean, there's certainly like a cinema verite quality to the way – you know, like just there's shaky cam, there's a documentary kind of quality to it, but at the same time, there's a stillness in certain moments that just feels so perfect. Um, a, a scene that takes place in the bathroom that I'll never, ever, ever forget. Uh, so yeah, it's it's really just like a Cassavetes 
sort of exercise done mm-hmm. right. And it has a rawness to it that I'll never – it's my jam. I yeah. just love this kind of movie. I yeah. just always have – and ever since we did the Cassavetes episode, I just – I want more movies like this. And I agree that it's maybe not the most original movie um, in terms of subject matter – but at the same time, I think the performances are what carries it. And by the time you get to the end, you don't know what to think. You don't know what to expect from this character and where he's going to go in life. And I like that feeling of thinking, what's going to happen next? And that's what you're left with. It's kind of like – and I think, the, I think the producing team is the same people who put together Martha, Marcy, May, Marlene. Oh, yeah. So – Not I think writer-director. No. Not but, Sean Durkin didn't write But I think director. he might have produced it. Okay. I think. And if not, it's like his production cohorts or sure, something. Sure. But I think you'll like it. I'll have to check it out. Please do, Patrick. So my number six, um, okay, so in 2013, uh, a friend of mine, Travis Crawford, was working for a label called Artsploitation Films. They did Vanishing Waves and some other stuff. And um, there was this film, there were two films he was trying to get for the label, but they were not like a very powerful label, and they could not come up with the money to acquire these two films. One of them turned out to be um, Strange Color of Your Body's Tears, which we've all talked about before. And then uh, the other one was this film that the producers wanted a lot of money for, and he's like, man, this is the most inaccessible thing. No one's ever going to pay this money to see this thing. And he talked to Kino Lorber about it, and they took a chance and acquired it, and it's shown up on a lot of lists, even though it is a very inaccessible film. It is Alexei German's Hard to Be a God. It's a three-hour... Russian oh, science yeah. fiction epic. Um, oh, Patrick has it here! Uh, <laughs> oh my god! I have the DVD right here. Yeah. Oh shit! For hard to be mm-hmm. gone. Mm-hmm. So it is. Um, it's 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 about a uh, a man uh, who he's from Earth, but he's. He's on a uh, another planet that resembles the Earth in the Middle Ages, and he's treated like a godlike figure. And he's trying to study this population, but he he has a hard time not being absorbed by the chaos of this world, uh, especially after there's a movement to kill off people that read and intellectuals. Uh, he has to get involved. Um, so it has like this. Uh, political implications of intervention kind of aspect to it. That's not what people get from Heart to Be God, though, I don't think. It is a it's a visual sensual tour de force of, like, a very ugly world. It's brilliantly realized, but it's a very unpleasant thing that it achieves perfectly. Um, you could compare it to some early Tarkovsky films or some of the uh, films of Bellatar. I'm even reminded of a... Um, and I'm not the only person that uh, noticed this. Uh, uh, Andrzej Zwawski, the guy that did Possession, did a science fiction film called On the Silver Globe. Very crazy. Uh, very, I don't know, it's, it's hard to describe it. But uh, these things are, I think when I watch it, 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 it conveys 
mud and stench and blood and shit and all this stuff that it's like a real unpleasant visceral thing. And it's totally like amazing to me that it has as much acclaim as it does because it's a real, it's brilliantly realized unpleasant and visionary. It might be one of the only films that we're talking about today that is remembered in 50 years because it's the kind of film that is so perfect at what it is that it can't help but be recognized as such by people that aren't put off by the fact that it is is a kind of bewildering and alienating experience. So, I mean, I say that like, you know, people feel, you know, curious to check it out. It's on Netflix. I mean, it's, it's out there in the mainstream to find. It's not easy. Um, But it is a great film for what it is. Um, And so that is why it is my number six. I don't know. I'm scared. I didn't, I didn't get a chance to watch it. It was one of those, I've had it, right here on my end table next to my couch for the past two weeks saying, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to watch Hard to Be a God. And then it's – the fr- actually, yeah. I put it on once and then it started skipping. So I had to take it to the store and buff it and then I haven't watched it again. Yeah. I'm, I'm, ex- I'm excited to check it out. But I'm also, yeah, like Jim said, I'm a little scared of it as well. It's, it's a film to be wary of. The first time I watched it, I was like – I found it like brilliant and exhausting and infuriating and you know it's full of images that like are hard to shake off um but whether it adds up to something that is like easily you know to emotionally engage with you know it's 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 a challenging film and I wouldn't like pretend otherwise but it's interesting and it is art you know it it is something that it's 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 worth experiencing if you if you're not put off by the fact that it is unpleasant which it is Awesome. So I'm going to go ahead and read a bunch more lists now that we're at number five. Oh my god, we're at the top five, and here are some more lists, people. That's right. Um, By the way, all these lists that got sent to me, I uh, compiled into a spreadsheet where I I did a a weighted point system where things that were voted number one got ten points, things that were voted number ten got one point, um, and so on. So uh, at the end of all of these lists, I'm going to have the Director's Club reader poll – and we're going to see what our readers thought the top ten movies of the year were. Um, That's exciting. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, or maybe it'll just all even out to be a very generic list. We'll see. The uh, number ten for Zach Batante of Film Jive podcast. Yay! Um, he was on the uh, Lynch episode. He was on the Cassavetes episode. Um, he gave us ten films. He said he saw very few films in 2015, so his list is far from being definitive. Regardless, his number 10 was Kumiko, the Treasure Hunter. His number 9 was Mistress America. His number 8 was The Forbidden Room. His number 7 was The Assassin. His number 6 was Hard to Be a God. His number 5 was Anomalisa. His number 4 was Greetings to the Ancestors, uh, a Ben Russell film I have not heard of before now. His number 3 was Engram of Returning by Diachi Saeto, uh, another film I hadn't heard of before now. His number two is uh, The Exquisite Corpus, which is a Peter <laughs> Charakasi movie who mm. directed Outer Space. I did not know right. he had a new film this year. I didn't either. Mm-hmm. And his number one was The Look of Silence by Joshua Oppenheimer. Good choice. Um, we're going to just have to seek out, see if that uh, Charakasi film is uh, available somewhere online. Um, Robert Reinecke, friend of the show, who was on the anthology episode. He's a co-host of Still Watching the Skies. That's right. We've both been on Still Watching the Skies. Great show. Uh, He sent us his top ten. He said uh, number ten was It Follows, masterfully tense. He said number nine was What We Do in Shadows, that it was the funniest movie of the year to him. Number eight was Thebe. Um, I do not know anything about Thebe. He said it was gorgeously shot, though. His number seven was Ex Machina, but he said it had great set design, terrific performances. His number six was Brooklyn. 
Um, and he loved uh, Sayorzi Ronin, I guess. It's Shir Sharonin. Okay, sure. Uh, his number five was Get the Trial of Vivian uh, Amsalom, which I didn't know anything about before now. Uh, it's immaculately shot, primary and close-ups like Passion of Joan of Arc. His number four was Clouds of Sils Maria. He said that it was the film that Birdman thought it was. His number three <laughs> was The Martian. He said it, it was blockbuster entertainment about problem-solving, which he enjoyed. His number two was Spotlight. Said work for him in a non-flashy way, and he said number one was Mad Max Fury Road. It was pure cinematic bliss. Um, we also got a list from Jason P. He said his number ten was Ex Machina. His number nine was Creed. His number eight was The Big Short. His number seven was Star Wars: The Force Awakens. His number six was The Martian. His number five was Spotlight. His number four was Anomalisa. His number three was Steve Jobs. His number two was The Hateful Eight, and his number one was Mad Max Fury Road. Wow. What a shock! Yeah, can't believe that showed up on another list. Uh, we also got a, we also got a list sent to us from Thomas Wishloff. Um, what was the the Big Kahuna Burger podcast he he hosted? Yeah, longtime listener of the he show. He was on the Oliver Stone episode of all things. Uh, he sent us a list. His number ten was Corbo. It's a Quebec film by Matthew Denis. His number nine was Cop Car by John Watts. First time that showed up on any of these lists. Number eight was Hateful Eight. His number seven was The Lobster, which was an interesting film I didn't get to see. Uh, interesting sounding film, I should say. His number six was Pan, uh, directed by Jacques Ayodard, uh, another one I don't know about. His number five was Ex Machina. His number four was Tangerine. His number three was Mistress America. His number two was It Follows. And his number one was Carol. Thank you, Thomas. We, we also baby, have we, we a, baby Thomas. We have a guy here named Matt Gamble. Um, this guy is the world's biggest Brian De Palma fan. I suggest that you find him on uh, Where the Long Tail Ends and you send him some messages um, asking him what his favorite Brian De Palma movies are. Yes, absolutely. Um, and he, Lars von Trier, apparently. Yeah, he gave a, a rough top ten. He said that one thing he thought he would do with this list is only include good movies, unlike Jim. So um, he, in no particular order, his list is Mad Max Fury Road, What We Do in Shadows, The Big Short, Ex Machina, which I thought was weird because he said he was including only good movies, uh, Dope, An Honest Liar, Spring, The Martian, It Follows, and 71. I do not know what 71 is. I've heard about it. It's made a couple of lists. I guess it's a foreign film of sorts. I, I guess so. Jonathan Anderson, a longtime friend from Chud.com, he sent us a list uh, his top ten films. Number ten was Clouds of Sil Maria. Number nine was End of the Tour. Number eight was The Gift. He knows that I'm pleased to see that one included. His number <laughs> seven was Spotlight. His number six was Carol. His number five was Tangerine. His number four was Room. His number three was The Duke of Burgundy. His number two was Mad Max Fury Road. His number one was The Martian. And he also said that the best movie he saw for the first time in 2015 was A Fish Called Wanda. What took you so long, Jonathan? That movie's amazing. Inconceivable. Oh, sorry, wrong movie. Yeah. Uh, why do you always do that? Um, we got we got an email from <laughs> K Gouda. Uh, I do not know what this person's <laughs> real Eric, name is. That's Eric Childress. Oh, this is uh, Eric Childress. Okay, that's his that's his stage name is K Gouda. That's his rap name. Yeah. Uh, is K Gouda. So uh, M C K Gouda sent us a <laughs> a top ten list that number ten was Star Wars: The Force Awakens. Number nine was Spring. Number eight was The Big Short. Number seven was Call Me Lucky. Number six was Meet Earl and the Dying Girl. Number five was Room. Number four was Steve Jobs. Number three was Spotlight. Number two was Inside Out. Number one was – go ahead, Jim, and guess. Mad Max Fury Road. Um, <laughs> we also got a list from Sean Pontow, really nice guy. Uh, um, I usually like what this guy has to write. If you want to read this one, you can go ahead. 
he's he's a he's a real ham. No, nah, we don't have to read the whole thing. Uh, <laughs> we a, don't really have the time. I'm sorry, Sean. Sorry, Sean. We appreciated the uh, thing he sent. He said his number ten was Star Wars: The Awakenings, the uh, Robin Williams one. His number nine was It Follows. His number eight was The Overnight. His number seven was Inside Out. His number six was Tangerine. His number five was The Martian. His number four was The Walk. Uh, he said, I bet I hated this movie, but guess what? I didn't see the fucking movie because goddamn, I'm not seeing that movie. That's too scary for me. His number three <laughs> was shy. That's, that's more intimidating to me than uh, Hard to Be a God is The Walk. Um, his number three was Chirac. His number two was Queen of Earth. He said, sorry, Patrick, but you can be so wrong sometimes. I sure can. Not this time. And his number one was <laughs> The Duke of Burgundy. Hey, thank you for sending in a list, Sean. I'm going to get one more. This is from Brendan Leonard. You might remember him from the Michael Mann and the David Mamet episodes. Very memorable. Very memorable. Uh, he sent us a top ten. His number ten was Me, Earl, and the Dying Girl. His number nine was McFarlane, USA. Huh? His number eight was Mississippi Grind. His number seven was Mad Max Fury Road. His number six was Spring. His number five was Eden. His number four was Brooklyn. His number three was Spotlight. His number two was The Big Short. And his number one was Carol from Todd Haynes. He says that now that Spike Lee has an honorary Oscar, Todd Haynes is the American director most in need of one. Thank you, Brendan. Um, I I will say that I like uh, Mississippi Grind. It's like if Alexander Payne directed California Split. I I can be down for that. Yeah. It's really well acted. Really good. Do you want to hear about my number five movie? I do so bad. Beg me. (gasps) Patrick, please! Jesus, okay. I wasn't expecting you to think so well. All right, just for you, Jim. Bill, cover your ears. My number five is Heart of a Dog, uh, the Laurie Anderson movie. We talked about it a little. I think... I want to see it again. It is so highly improbable that a audio-visual essay, which is really the only way I can describe it, as the audio and the visuals are both important, but they don't necessarily go together in logical ways the way you expect cinema to. It's not an essay the way like a Michael Moore movie is an essay. Um, the audiovisual essay about the post post nine 11 surveillance state of America. That plus crazy. Her is... plus. <sighs> Sorry. I was just like, what we're going from it's like this beautiful, serene portrait of your dog and hanging out in the mountains and looking up at the sky and Oh, nine 11 surveillance. Fuck. It just gets, it just takes a left turn suddenly. But in a very interesting way. Yeah. Um, so anyway, what I was saying was, <laughs> uh, it's very unlikely that an audiovisual visual essay on surveillance culture and home movies of a cute dog that she misses, that she sad died, and ruminations on the nature of memory would all dovetail into one meaningful thing. And it's even more unlikely that a movie that is so based in spirituality would affect me as someone who has no spirituality at all. Um, not only do, not only was I uh, riveted by all of her rich person stories of her <laughs> relationship with her religion, where she got to call in her own personal Buddhist monk to help her dog's anxiety or whatever. Like, <laughs> like, like there's some definite, it, you would, there's a lot of this stuff in this movie that I that if someone had told me where it was in this movie, I'd be like, well, I'm not seeing that. That sounds super alienating. Um, it all sort of comes together, and it is the most beautiful cinematic depiction of the act of remembering I've ever seen. Um, it's, again, it's like Carol, where 
aesthetically, it's not new ground. The I, the idea of like you know super slowed down, like two frames per second super eight footage, and you know rain on raindrops on windows, and um, you know rough black and white sketches roughly animated, and there's all sorts of um, there's all sorts of uh, effects and choices and, and techniques that are used here that to evoke memory that have been used before. But the thing that sort of separates heart of a dog is it is so committed. It at no point do you see a face like that's just her being interviewed or just her turning to a camera and asking someone about someone else. It is, it is absolutely its own thing. And it is dedicated only to being that thing and nothing else. And it follows its own logic. And it's the sort of thing that, this is what I was hoping montage of heck would be. Like, it's the sort of thing that I was hoping, like, all right, Kurt Cobain, like, uh, it, they found his drawings and his recordings and stuff, and then they literally did, like, a crazy audio-visual montage to it that is just feeling like being inside of his head for two hours or however long it is. Like, that's what I was expecting out of that. And what I got out of that was, like, he, when he was born, he was a weird kid, and then he learned music, and that was really important to him, and then he joined a band, and the band got too famous, and it was too much for him, and he turned to drugs, and he found someone that he loved, but she was into drugs as well. Like, it was the behind the musics. It was a it was a striking, it was like a visually striking version of that. There's a lot of really cool moments in Montage of Heck, but it is just, like, structurally behind the music. Um, and I was, I was hoping for more something like Heart of a Dog that's so uncompromising in its structure... I really do just feel like watching Heart of a Dog was just being inside of Laurie Anderson's head. And the fact that she's a musician helps because she designs like these complicated like montage soundscapes and that syncs up with the images, that syncs up with the narration, that syncs up with the themes and everything just feels perfectly of a thing. Like it was just this object that she was sculpting in a room for several years. Um, there's really no movie like it. If it if someone watches it and goes, eh, okay, like I would totally understand that because I can't really say like, well, it's brilliant because this is never like there's no there's nothing in this movie that feels next level or revelatory. It's just it is so committed to being what it is and what it is moved me in such surprising ways um, that I just adore it and. Yeah, my it was one of I was like just a absolutely wonderful theater experience because I thought it was going to be like a traditional documentary. Um, I did not know it was going to be so strange, and so it's one of the most surprised I've been in a theater all year. Um, so, Heart of a Dog's my number five. It's a great choice. Yeah, I, I had the chance to see that with her showing at the New York Film Festival, and it sounded like. Like something I would find too precious. Yeah. For. So I passed on it and I was like feeling like such an idiot when I saw it like in Philly. I'm like, oh, this is a masterpiece. Why did I not go yeah, see yeah. it? You know, with her there. But yeah. Um, uh, my number five we've already talked about uh, is Carol. Uh, I don't have too much more to add to it other than just that I feel like, you know, when all the hype dies away, um, you know, because it's, you know, it's going to be an Oscar bait kind of film for some people now. But I think, you know, when that all dies away, it's just going to be a great, perfectly designed little melancholy holiday film for people that want to watch something and cry on holidays yeah. uh, around Christmas. And I think that's terrific. I'm glad Todd Haynes has that on the resume. Now. Sure. <laughs> so yeah. That's Jim, what's your number five? You know what my number five is? It's a movie we've also talked about. It's called The Hateful Eight. Ooh. Mm-hmm. Ooh. 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 
surprise. Ooh. I gotta say, this is my favorite Tarantino movie since Jackie Brown. Really? Yeah, I'm crazy. Really? No, I'm crazy. I am certified. I don't know. They certainly think ah! so. I mean, um, I, it, yes, but not because of this. I like the claustrophobic setting. Yes. Uh, I felt like my expectations were were, were consistently subverted. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Um, I like spending time with extremely nasty characters, I think. Do you? Like, yeah, I think I do. Yeah. I you should I watch it. Uh, you, should, you, should, you should ask Gabe for, like, a list of spaghetti westerns. I want to. Like, really bleak-ass. I do. I, nasty, I, I, exploitative mm-hmm. spaghetti westerns. Yeah, 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 yeah. I just uh, Cutthroats Nine is a movie that was I saw referenced a lot in Letterbox among like the exploitation reviewers as a reference point for Hateful Eight. So maybe that should be the next one you seek out. Right. I just remember the feeling I I, I felt very similarly as you did at the at the very end with Jennifer Jason Lee getting hung. Like I didn't feel like that was justice. I felt like what why exactly are the, how, we don't have any proof that she did anything wrong you know and i mean i guess they're doing it out of self defense in a way but it's just a really horrible nasty way um they're not doing and, it out of self defense they're well, going to shoot her in the head yeah that's true that's true but like like i think you know i think from the moment that you know kurt russell is killed off pretty early on i was just like what and what are we what are we in for from here on out? Spoiler alert, by the way. Well, I, yeah, I think people know by now that, that we're spoiling movies. I I would think, but anyway, I'll make sure I put it in the show notes to expect that. Sure, sure. Um, yeah, I walked out feeling like it was kind of an indictment on, or like a documentation on hypocrisy and how you really can't trust a person even when they appear to be something. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I who knows if Walter Goggins was really the sheriff or not. Uh, you know, and who knows if Tim Roth was really the hangman or if he just stole his identity from somebody else. Well, you know he's not the hangman because he's part of the gang. Well, yeah, okay, that's true. But anyway, I just, I just think, like, I think people really want Tarantino to replicate the strengths of his last two films in ways you've already talked about with the cathartic revenge angle, um... To where, I, I don't know, maybe people's expectations, you know, again, were just kind of uh, thwarted with this film. Like, they were just kind of like, huh? You know, and I was I was taken aback, but in a very satisfying way. Uh, and walking out, I was just like, that's Tarantino, always full of surprises. Yeah. And in ways that continually uh, evolve. Yeah. It, in it, in interesting did, ways. It did remind me of walking out of Inglorious Bastards. Or the feeling of being inside the theater at Glorious Bastards and not knowing where it was going to go at any given moment. Yeah. Um, that is kind of the, the joy of watching a new Tarantino movie for the first time is you don't quite know how it's going to get where it's getting. Like, is Django going to lose? No, Django's not going to lose. But how is it going to – how is it getting there? What's going to happen along the yeah. way? It always feels like anything could happen in a Tarantino movie. And it sort of takes me back to like a conversation I had with my dad after Jackie Brown. He didn't like it because – he was like, the ending with with her just, or you know, with them just shooting Ordell and that was it. I was expecting like a David Mamet kind of a twist or something exciting or something like a more intense confrontation between Jackie and Ordell. And I was like, I actually think that's kind of great yeah. of him to have that kind of non-confrontational 
you know, just, just a couple of shots and he's down and that's it. That's the end of the movie pretty much. Um, and, you know, in the same way that, like, my reaction to No Country for Old Men is like, oh, I really wanted to see that confrontation between Josh Brolin and Javier Bardem. But then the second time I watched it, I was like, you know what, that's actually great. That's actually a brilliant move to choose to subvert your expectations with that. And I think The Hateful Eight is a continuously subverting of expectations experience that I found utterly satisfying and fascinating to where I can't wait to watch it again. I certainly didn't expect Tarantino himself to narrate the film. That was, uh, <laughs> I was taken aback. That's why this chapter's called... I know, but we both laughed <laughs> at that. Secret. It's hilarious. <laughs> yeah, I, I know people find that absolutely annoying, you know? And, oh, that's fair. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I thought yeah, I thought it was hysterical. Me My, too. Have either of you seen Have either of you seen it a second time? No, no. I it's all it's like it's so nasty. I'm not sure like it's, I want I want to run out and see it again. I'll I'll definitely rewatch it when it hits the home video. But also, it's so expensive yeah. because it's like uh it's like a eighteen dollar ticket here. Well, I'd be interested to see the the, the non roadshow version to see what they took out because I guess he took other than the overture and stuff. There's Something excluded, I guess. If I had to take one thing out of the Roadshow version of Hateful Eight, it would be that little apple blossom drop. <laughs> the, I like, I, lo- I love the White Stripes, but that song sucked <laughs> in there. Yeah, that that seemed out of place. Yeah, yeah. In the Maracone score, oh my god, it's so good. When that opened and those credits and that score, I was just like, I am in. Mm-hmm. And I still love it. I love it. Fuck you, Matt Gamble. Yeah, we'll see how we, we see how we see how we feel. Yeah, make sure to uh, again if you if Google Matt Gamble and send him all your thoughts about Hateful Eight and Brian De Palma. Um, <laughs> my number four film, very very personal choice, not showing up on many people's lists. I wonder if too many people consider it a 2014 film, but Chicago release in here was 2015, so I'm going with it, Mommy. Um, it's. It's hard, it's hard for me to be objective about this. Uh, I've seen it three times now. Oh, yeah. wow. Because okay. I watched it twice on home video. Um, Just watch it again. I I liked it more and less the second time. Ooh, um, interesting. Yeah. The, it's hard for me to be objective about this movie just because I was a problem child as a kid, and I knew I just put my parents through hell with misbehaving and, like, getting sent to the principal's office uh, every week in elementary school and like attacking other kids and just like being violent and being abusing myself. And like, you know, like I'd be put into like a little detention area and I would just start like slamming myself into walls and getting like really aggressive. And God, that sounds just like the John Ritter movie. What John Ritter movie? Problem child. Oh, okay. Well, that's my number four. I guess I'm done talking. <laughs> What's your number four, Jim? No, <laughs> what the hell? <laughs> Well, I mean, it's just like when I was growing up, I would write to Death Row inmates, and one of them, hmm. he, when he was released, he came and he was really ha- – first he was really happy about Smiley Pies. Oh, uh, okay, um, okay, okay. <laughs> I don't remember much about that movie, so – but yeah. I was, That was a movie I actually – Was that Michael Richards was the inmate? Michael Richards is the inmate. I rented that movie over and over again as a kid. I definitely related to oh. Junior as a – I didn't realize he was a sociopath at the time. I just thought he was the coolest kid because <laughs> <laughs> he was the most Bart Simpson. <laughs> but um, at any rate, Mommy is a really, really moving movie about three broken people trying to rectify their place, and one of them absolutely cannot, and the other two are trying to prop him up, and they cannot. Um, and it's shot in one-one ratio, which was super distracting in the theater. Um, yeah, because well, because it's you know it's one-one because you already I mean I already read about it ahead of time, so I knew that it was in a one-one ratio, which is 
not even what I think the average like standard ratio that you think of as the square, like the non widescreen is like one and one, three, four, something like that. So like it looked taller than it was wide. It's like an optical illusion because you've been trained to see a rectangle as a square in cinema. Anyway, but there are moments in the film where the ratio opens up when they're all together and it's, I don't know, it's hard for me to talk about this movie. It's in a lot of ways, it is a, it is a harsher um, and more raw nerve, but very tip, but still very predictable kind of three broken people form a family kind of a drama. Um, it's not an unusual indie movie. Um, I think it has an emotional commitment and a, a commitment to the nastiness of its characters that these kind of the movies generally don't have. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's genuinely like frightening and intense in points and acknowledges the frightening, intense aspects of being an out of control child in a way that these movies won't because most of the time kids act up in movies. They're in like hilarious ways. Um, and when he acts up, it's like very scary. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't really care to talk more about mommy. <laughs> it's a really, really, really moving experience for me that I related a lot to. Um, it's not, necessarily something I'd recommend to everybody. I think, Oh, um, what's the, the, I think the soundtrack is really, really good in that a lot of soundtracks, they feel like, um, the director is trying to impress you with these cool songs they know. And even when they work well in the movie, like the soundtrack to drive is fucking awesome. You know, like that makes that movie's mood, but it also kind of feels like Nicholas Winding reference trying to impress you with all these cool songs, you know, and like, you know, you or like you see a Sofia Coppola movie. There's always really cool soundtracks in those movies. You know, like Marie Antoinette has an awesome. I'm, I'm, okay, okay, okay. I'm saying they're like legitimately <laughs> cool soundtracks, but it also feels like she's just trying to be like, look how cool the soundtrack is. And it's very hip and like. I don't, All of pander- the- I don't think it's pandering, though. I, just, I, just- I don't think it's necessarily pandering. It just feels a little... Like, even Tarantino, to an extent, when he has the characters in Death Proof talk about how cool this unknown band is, you know, the, right, before the, right before that first car crash, it feels very much just like, check out these cool songs I know. Like, and there's nothing wrong with that. Like, they can make a movie. I love the way those filmmakers use music, but Mommy feels like the antithesis of that because... All of the music choices in this are super broad, adult, contemporary. Like, there's Eiffel 65's Blue. Sarah McLaughlin. Sarah McLaughlin. Oasis' Wonderwall. Dido's White Flag. Uh, Counting Crow's Colorblind. Um, Which I've always loved and I've covered. <laughs> yeah. Like, all of these, like, songs that... The thing they all have in common is that they were on a mixtape that was made in 2002 when these characters went on a car trip. Um, and they're like this... and. You know, back when the 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 he main character, when his father was still alive, that soundtrack. I think he put a lot of thought into it. Right. Well, it's like it's thoughtful because it it means something to the characters. Yeah. And the fact that it isn't cool is what makes it meaningful to the characters specifically, and not just like trying to impress the audience. You know, like, and I think that use of music is kind of underrated. Um, because, again, yeah, I just think a lot of times people use soundtracks to be like, these are the coolest songs I know. I want to put them into my movie so my movie will be as cool as these songs I love. As opposed to, like, really curating uh, a selection of songs that matches the character well. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah, 
like I think I think to a certain extent Guardians of the Galaxy did the same thing because a lot even though a lot of people went nuts over that little mixtape in that movie, a lot of those songs are like, oh wow, it's <laughs> it's 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 fucking I want you back by the Jackson Five, real deep cut, you know. It feels like something a mom would make for her son, you know. Like I think those songs were chosen well as well because they're not like it's uh, stuck on a feeling, you know. Well, it's interesting the the Martian uses disco music oh, yeah. in a very kind of I don't know if it's ironic, but it's just a really weird kind of way. It's like playing hot yeah. stuff because like that's the only CD that was left from the crew. Like, oh, this is the only music I can listen to, and I guess I have to subject myself to I, it. I I. I that sounds like the way that in Trip to Italy uses Alanis Morissette's Jagged oh. Little Pill. I think that's yeah, a cool yeah, – yeah. I think that's a similar sort of thing I'm talking about. Right. Where it says something about the characters, their growing relationship, where they think they're too cool for a Jagged Little Pill. But by the end of the movie, they're just singing along to every song because mm-hmm. every song in that album is a fucking banger. <laughs> like, yeah. Like, so anyway, I think the music in Mommy is cool too. It's a good movie. I'm done talking about it's it. What's your number four, Jim? <laughs> what about uh, Bill? Is it Bill's turn? No, it's your turn. Oh, it's my turn. It's your turn. I, yeah, it's your turn. I forgot. What is my number four? Hmm. It's a movie by Charlie Kaufman. And it's called Anomalisa. Have you heard of it? No. What hmm. is this? It's about puppets. Oh, Dummy! With Adrian Brody. Yeah! That didn't come out this year. Great movie, no, though. No, it is a really good movie. That's kind of an underrated movie. Mila Jovovich is really funny in it. She plays like a punk rock girl. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody should see Dummy. Everyone should see Lars and the Real Girl. A good double feature, Mommy and Dummy. Um, Anomalisa is Charlie Kaufman's latest film, a, uh, a movie that was really was actually higher on my list. But even um, even though I, it's funny because I forgot what movie. Well, it was just was it Mommy that you said that you loved and liked a little less on the second time? No, I liked Mommy more. Oh, oh no, I like I liked them both more and less because there were things I appreciated about it more, and then there were things that seemed more generic the second time around. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, Anomalisa, I wished it was longer. Yeah. I remember thinking that at the at the end of when we watched it at Collins, I was like, I wish it was longer. I kind of feel that way now. Um, but at the same time, there's no denying the, the romance that occurs in this film, and you know, it's obviously another doomed romance because that's Charlie Kaufman. That's the world he lives in. But it, to me, when I when I first saw, it, I was like, this is kind of like his punch drunk love, only less frantic, and obviously, you know, um, has more of a bittersweet kind of ending. But I can't get I can't get over how beautiful certain moments, uh, like the, their entire courtship together, is kind of transcendent. And I I. I I, I don't know. It's like I know people. A couple of people in particular just can't get behind this character and how much, you know, how narcissistic and just dull and drab he is. And I just kind of went. That's mo- like every single Charlie Kaufman protagonist sort of falls under that umbrella of like I'm lost. I'm a lonely. sad sack narcissist. Yeah, pretty much. And that doesn't bother me, <laughs> you know, because like that's. I don't know if it's a reflection of who he is as a person, but it certainly is, you know, a reflection of a state of mind that I think people can relate to at some point in their lives of feeling like, I don't know how, you know, I don't know where I am in the world and I don't know if I can connect with people or, you know, something along those lines, or I just went through a breakup and I don't know how I'm going to get over it. What should I do? Or I'm, I'm in, you know, I have this creative idea. I don't know how to get it out of me. And 
so I think like every single movie he's done just captures, you know, an internal struggle, a frustration with connection with the outside world in ways that continue to just interest me. And this is more of just like a low-key synecdoche, and you know, he he sort of went off the rails and almost crazy Lynchian, almost borderline horror film with synecdoche, and this is just like him doing the complete antithesis and exploring that um, in a very magical way at certain moments. Obviously, the, the, the sex scene is very memorable, but also, like I said, the girls just want to have fun brings a tear to my eye when I, when I see it. Um, so, yeah, but the thing that I found very interesting is the Frugali um, delusion. You know, the hotel is named Frugali, I believe, and it's a delusion where somebody believes that everybody is the same person. Um, they have trouble with face recognition. It's a certain part of the brain. I believe it's the parietal lobe where it's it has the inability to recognize faces. Um, not not in the same way like with your friend with the prestige, but just like every single face looks the same. And so this person suffers from that disorder in this movie. So, like, at one point when, you know, he's having breakfast with Jennifer Jason Lee and she starts to, he's, you know, he starts to notice her quirks and her imperfections and the way she eats and stuff, and she transforms right before him. I get, I get, I get a little teary-eyed at that moment because he's sort of realizing she is extremely human and flawed and she's basically becoming like everybody else and I can't handle that. And then he sort of externalizes his frustration in the speech um, which is very funny also. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I sort of go back and forth between, like, you know, feeling really sad and laughing, and that's kind of like, I like that roller coaster emotional experience I get from this movie. Um, but it's also just really consistent, too, at the same time. So, I, I don't know, Anomalisa is just another great Charlie Kaufman movie, and he's still my favorite writer to date of all time. He's and my favorite. doing Annie Hall again. Yeah, why not? Nothing wrong with that. We're, uh, you don't think it's him doing uh, Stardust Memories a little bit too? I was I was thinking the aspect of Annie Hall where he where Albie falls in love with Annie because she's so unlike all these other women. She's so unique, yeah. and then by the end of the movie, he has sort of turned her into all these other women. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's the Stardust Memories. I think I just think of the um, the fact that everyone around him is so off putting and stupid. Yeah. Uh, and he's, you know, kind of like a minor celebrity. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's, I f- feel like that's probably like Kaufman being autobiographical at his, at his most, uh, yeah. nasty. Um, but not, in, not in an unfunny or uninteresting way. I think it's cr- cruel towards the character. It's my favorite, uh, group of actors probably of any film, just because I, I've got a long history. I mean, David Thewlis, I love from, uh, Mike Lee's Naked and uh, Jennifer Jason Lee and Tom Noonan have been two of my favorite you know, actors since probably since I was a teenager. Yeah, when uh, I first saw so, the cast, I thought you were the casting director. I was like, "Wow, good job, yeah. Bill." Um, but yeah, uh, yeah I was. Uh, I think I think you know the length is probably because just the expense of making sure. something like that. Sure. But uh, yeah, no, it's it almost made my list. It's definitely a great film. I didn't like it quite as much the second time without the surprise element, but everything else held up really strong on the second viewing. You could tell it's a film that will age and uh in a nice way i think it's going to hold up um and it might even grow on me in a new way like the way um her was a film that i underrated a lot probably at the time that it came out because i think i was just 
put off by how much people were overpraising it, but it's one I've gone back to several times since it came out. But uh, uh, my number four uh, is Gaspar Noé's Love, um, which is a film I was I was not expecting to like it. Um, I went into it with real trepidation, um, as you know anyone does going into a film that's most famous for having a uh, a dick ejaculating the camera in 3D. Um, but I think it's the best relationship film, uh, at least the best relationship film with a man and a woman as the central couple, um, of 2015. Um, it got a lot better on the second viewing and it was already pretty good on the first viewing for me. So I almost ranked it higher than number four. Um, even though I totally see why there's a million deal breakers or potential deal breakers for other people. Um, it has, you know, this kind of numbed voiceover in the opening scenes with the, uh, kind of a, a self-loathing, kind of brutish film geek kind of hero. Um, it's, a, you know, it's got some ugly confrontations. Um, there's some awkwardly incorporated, like, autobiographical or self-reflexive aspects to it. Um, even the soundtrack, which I think is quite effective, but it recycles a lot of music from other films the way Tarantino does. Um, but it uses things in a very unusual way, whether it's the music from Deep Red or Assault on Precinct 13. Uh, huh. Even Derek Jarman's, Derek Jarman's Blue. I mean, they're recontextualized in a way that is quite uh, clever. Um, in a way, it's kind of like an unholy marriage of uh, the Blue Valentine and the Brown Bunny, uh, filtered through uh, kind of the European art shock eye candy approach of a Lars von Trier or a Nicholas Winding Refn. Like, it's beautiful looking, but it's it's dealing with like this very raw. Uh, relationship story um, and the hardcore sex I think you know I, I that's kind of uh, doesn't bother me I, some of it I think is quite effective but it's very subjective you know and it does it does rub your face in it I mean it is not shy about being an adult film in that respect I mean even more so than Nymphomaniac um, so it's not a film for everybody I think the people that will respond to it, it will be a very important film to them. But, and I understand why the critics were afraid of it. Um, I understand why it didn't play widely. Um, it's, but I think it's a great film. Um, so yeah, love from Gaspar Noé. It's a really good film. My, we still, we still got to see it. Yeah. Um, I'm going to go ahead and, uh, read some more lists. Um, we got Chase Ferenza. Uh, he says, thanks so much for doing the continue to these episodes. You're his, welcome. His number, well, he, he said his number one was Anomalisa, but then he said he hadn't seen it yet. He just thinks it will be. So I'm not <laughs> counting that. I'm taking it off the top. Yeah. So uh, his number 11, which is now his number 10, is The Green Inferno. His number nine is Black Hat. His number six, uh, his number eight <laughs> is The Big Short. His number seven is The Nightmare. His number six is Lost River. His number five is Best of Enemies. His number four is Mad Max Fury Road. His number three is Queen of Earth. His number two is Ex Machina, and his number one was It Follows. And then we got another one here from Nancy Turner. Nancy Turner wanted to put Phoenix on here, but she could not dis- she could not deny the love her love of the Co- Concord's crew and their humor. So her number ten instead was What We Do in Shadows. Her number nine was Mad Max Fury Road. Her number eight was Carol. Number seven was Lobster. Her number six was Victoria's. Number five was Sicario. Her number four was The Hateful Eight. Her number three was Queen of Earth. Her number two was Inside Out. Her number one was Mistress America, or the story of her life as an English major with a stepsister. Um, <laughs> we got one from Joshua Foer. He 
can't believe it's five years and 100 episodes. He's been listening almost since the start, and it keeps getting better. He said his number 10 was Mistress America. His number 9 was Dope. His number 8 was Ex Machina. His number 7 was James White. (gasps) His number 6 was Carol. His number 5 was Inside Out. His number 4 was Call Me Lucky. His number 3 was Son of Saul. (gasps) He says that number 2 was Mad Max Fury Road. And his number 1 was Anomalisa. I'm assuming he saw it. Okay, and I'm going to go ahead and with my number three. Now, my top three are very, very tightly grouped. Um, they're all very, very special year-defining movies for me. Same here. My number three is Tangerine. Um, yeah. I think I've, choice. I've, I've spoken a lot about Tangerine. I, I praised Mistress America for both being uproariously funny and also being like really smart and character-driven. I think Tangerine... Uh, is almost as funny as Mistress America, and I think its characters are richer and more interesting in a way. Um, I, the only way I can really describe it, it, it's like a bullshit thing to say because I wasn't there when Slacker debuted, but watching this felt like what it must have felt like to see Slacker uh, when that came out. Like mm. It just felt like this totally unexplored piece of America and done in a totally fresh and new and astute way, and it's so funny and it's so harsh and it doesn't apologize for these characters behaviors and it doesn't try to um it doesn't try to like tie everything to a tragedy or try to chastise them for being the way they are they just are the way they are because of the world that they live in and the people that they deal with it's as someone who has never worked a nine-to-five job as someone who's never had vacation days really it's the best Christmas movie I've ever seen. Cause guess what? I work on Christmas. Christmas is just another fucking day where other people who are enjoying Christmas weave in and out of your life. You know, <laughs> like I, like I, I usually work Christmas. So I love that this is a Christmas movie where it does not fucking matter at all that it's Christmas. Your except video that stores open on Christmas. What's that? Your video stores. Open it on wasn't, Christmas? it was not, but I've worked all the previous Christmases that I, that uh, the places I've worked have been open. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, I love the characters. I think it's hysterical. I think it's gorgeous. I think the energy behind the camera work, I think they were just like following them around. They, you know, it's all shot on iPhones and they're following them around using like bikes and cars as dollies. Um, yeah. I, I think it's an incredible movie. I think the music is really, really great. Um, it's, it's just such a good, funny, meaningful movie. Um, I, 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 yeah, I just, I really love Tangerine. It was like a really special one of a kind thing. And I think that the climax in the donut shop is one of the funniest things I've ever seen. Um, I love that, uh, I forget his name, but the fuck up from season two of the wire is the pimp. Um, <laughs> and he's another oh, yeah. fuck up here. And I think he's a fuck up in inside man. He's like, he's like the guy who's like, I'm not going to wear this. They're going to shoot us. I'm going to take it off. And then he gets his ass kicked. Hmm. Um, I think he's an inside man as well. Like he, he's very good at being a fuck up. <laughs> uh, yeah. Tangerine's Tangerine's awesome. Uh, and there's not enough movies like it. Um, and yeah, it's just awesome that it doesn't try to turn melodramatic and it doesn't try to, uh, like justify it. It doesn't try to be nice and polite. Um, because when you when you live in a world where at any time someone can just pull over and call you a tranny or throw piss on you, like there's no there's no value in being polite. None of these women gain strength from being polite or or quote unquote like uh, a civilized or you Easy. know 
Yeah, and none, none of that helps them. So right. it's just a really cool way to take a look at that world. Um, and it's just way more entertaining and hilarious. Uh, you got the dad from Nightmare on Elm Street 2 as, like, passed out drunk in the backseat of the taxi talking about... Clue Gulliger, oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Clue Gallagher, yeah. He's amazing yeah. in it. Uh, there's tons of moments like that. Yeah, Tangerine's great. Yeah, I thought of you when I saw it, because I remember you texting me about how much you liked it, and uh, I could see why as soon as I watched it. it it's it's rough around the edges in places that I don't think hurt it. I think it actually gives it a lot more kick than if it had more of a sheen to it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I I think it's very funny, and uh, it 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 grows on you too because I think when I was first, I mean, when I first sat down with, I got to see it at home. I did not get to see it in the theater, unfortunately. Um, you know, I thought, you know, maybe this was like too loose, or you needed to be in the environment of of a, of a theater laughing along with it at first. Um, so it felt like a little bit too too raw. But you get to like those characters, even when they're being off-putting in their behavior. Um, so by the midway point, you're just kind of really invested in it. Um, just the same as any you know, Baumbach comedy. Oh, yeah, or for sure. Um, and another, another, um, a, another great final moment between two characters. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm glad that, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm glad that, uh, you know, people are getting, I, it's definitely one I hear a lot of people talking about, so I'm. It's on Netflix now, too, I think. Didn't you say that customers like it at your videos? Yeah, uh, a lot of customers do, and then one customer <laughs> got really mad at me. Because I, I don't know what he was expecting. I've never recommended it to someone and then not told them what it was about. I always said it's about these trans women prostitutes. One gets out of jail and finds out her ch- pimp's been cheating on her, and she kind of goes on a rampage. Like, that's always the byline I give about it. So I don't know what he was yeah. expecting. Maybe he didn't hear trans women. He just thought... Cause he, one customer came in, he yelled at my boss and wanted his money back because he didn't know, he didn't know no transvestites were in this movie. It's the worst movie I've ever seen in my life. Like, all right, dude. Did he think, did he think trans meant transient? Yeah, that's probably what he meant. (laughs) Oh, these transient prostitutes. I thought they're going to ride the rails like a noble. (laughs) Jesus. Yeah. But uh, no, most people actually, it is a crowd pleaser. Um, an unexpected crowd pleaser. And I, it has sort of the it has sort of the spirit of John Waters without a lot of things that try to be John Waters or try to take influence from John Waters. They kind of feel like pre-made camp. They often feel like like prefabricated cult items. Exactly. Um, this movie yeah. feels like it could be a legitimate, just like cult favorite. Uh, I'd be I'd be very surprised if it isn't a cult favorite already. Yeah. Um, but like this could be this could be the kind of movie that lives there with like headbanging the angry inch that is just like along oh, yeah. with queer cinema it's just like yeah you got to see this movie it's amazing right um, and part of that is because it is so you know unlike something like Carol it is so not uh, what's the word we were it's not respectable um, yeah no it's rude it's a rude yeah it's very rude <laughs> but but uh, yeah but righteously so yeah yeah exactly. Um, and and it like yeah the way it depicts the world in subtle ways and the power dynamics where it's like there's no out and out villains really the closest you get is the white dude pimp um, but you kind of almost feel sorry for him because he's just such a dope um, that he doesn't come across as like someone you really hate mm-hmm. uh, but like even like when they run into the cops like the cops are just having this discussion about <laughs> they're, 
they're having this weird like before that before they even get involved in the scene they're just having this conversation about like a bad first date they were on <laughs> and even like you kind of can almost like like all right well the cops they're not like you know aggressive angry like they're not kicking the shit out of these people you know out of out of uh alexandra they're not doing terrible things but you see that they're siding with the john because she doesn't get her fucking money you know yeah. like so the, the the system is still rigged against her um and it sort of depicts that in really interesting and fun uh funny and exciting ways and without being a tragedy apparently what happened was sean baker and his writing partner wrote it as a tragedy and then the two main actresses got a hold of it and were like why are you why is everything supposed to be so serious this is a hysterical story if i was telling this story to my friend they would laugh their ass off and so they kind of reworked the script after the imp- after those two actresses had that input um and it was all the better for it so i'm excited to see what he does next yeah i am t- I, did you see his uh, any of his other works before Tangier? no i i want to see starlet i haven't got a chance to see it yet yeah me too he knows how to shoot L.A. so beautifully in, in ways that you've never seen it shot like that before. Yeah. So yeah, well, it's just like a side of L.A. that you don't yeah. really see a yeah, lot. Yeah, exactly. My number three is Two Doors Nicole. Oh, yeah. That this, one. This top three hmm. sort of, yeah, it's total gym. Total gym. This is kind of yeah. This is kind of like the underdog of the year for me. It's a movie that was felt like it was made for me in my specific emotional state. It really does. And you know, even though like not a lot happens to the main character, you know, she's kind of like a you know a twenty something who isn't going to college, just living at her parents' home, and kind of unsure of herself in a way. Um, it's still very relatable no matter what age you're at, because you have these moments of, you know, questioning if this is where you want to be. And am I having these like bouts of insomnia for some sort of existential reason? And, you know, it starts off with a visual motif that plays out to the very end. So, I mean, it's a movie that sort of is very aware of what it's trying to convey visually rather than having everything spell out for you. There's, I mean, there's definitely interactions and she does have a friend and they have, you know, they have shared dialogue and she has a brother that has a three piece band that practices in their home. And, you know, she has interactions with like the drummer and stuff. Um, and those interactions totally feel like something like out of link letter or even it follows. It's just kind of people hanging out very low key kind of a feel to it. You know, it's paced very slowly, and yet it's it's it, it does something that I love. It's it, it has an observational quality to a character study, and you're watching somebody struggle in their own skin. And I just found myself in love with the aesthetic. Of course, it's black and white, and maybe it's like got a. Oh, is it black and white? Yeah, it's kind of. I like, never knew this about it. It's kind of like a Jim Jarmusch meets Francis Ha. Oh, okay. That's kind of like how I thought of it, and I just adore the shit out of this movie, and not just because she works in a thrift store, and there are moments in that thrift store was like that is crazy how much it reflects exactly what I do, to where she's like throwing a giant stuffed teddy bear into the dumpster, and I literally just did that. Hours before I watched the movie. That's funny. So it was weird. Um, but it's, yeah, I don't know anything about this 
uh, director. He's a French-Canadian guy. And um, the lead actress, I don't know if she's done a whole lot, but she's so charming in this movie. Um, everything about it, it, you know, some people can watch it and think it's slow and dry and uneventful, but I loved so much about Two Doors Nicole, um, which translates to your sleeping, Nicole. And um, that line comes to play in a very meaningful way. So everybody should see this movie. Please do. There's ways to find it. Yeah, I think I, I bought it on Blu-ray actually after uh, after seeing it. I think it's I agree it's a it's a great sleeper film for people that like a certain kind of like low key '90s indie kind of comedy. Like I, I it in in a way it almost reminded me a little bit of Spanking the Monkey without any of the transgressive elements to it. Um, mm. But it's even the um, there's a scene at night. Uh, that reminds me of a sequence out of um, the Coen Brothers' uh, "Man Who Wasn't There." Um, there's like an eeriness. Yeah, there's to definitely some, an eeriness to it at times. But it's yeah, it's definitely. I don't know why it's not more talked about because it's it's a very likable film that I you know I think will find a larger audience. Maybe maybe if it shows up on Netflix or something, people will will find it. But it's if, if I had people over to watch. Any of the films we're talking about today, it's definitely one of the first ones I would think to grab to show friends of, of everything we're talking about. Good job, Bill. Yeah. Good choice. Uh, my, um, my number three <clears throat> is um, uh, Eden, the uh, Mia Hansen love film uh, about a uh, kind of rise and fall story of uh, a young DJ in the French uh, dance music scene of the late 90s into early 2000s. Um, I, you know, I... This is just a film that brings me joy. I don't really have an intellectual reason for liking it so much, but uh, it's it, you know it's just got like a, a sense of mood. Um, it's it is a melodrama, but it's almost kind of like it's almost like too hip and French to really like give in to the highs and lows of the narrative conventions of a melodrama. So not too the the highs aren't too high and the lows aren't really too low. It's just kind of like him moving through this, like this period of like underground shows and basement parties and, and seeing America. And his story is based, I guess, on Mia Hansen Love's uh, brother, who was like a, uh, a DJ during this period. And I guess um, they were kind of in the same circles as Daft Punk, who play themselves at one point in it. Um, but they're like supporting characters that like their star continues to ascend while the other character is just finding the downside of, you know, cocaine and, and, and all that good, you know, melodrama stuff. But it's, I don't know, there's an energy to it I really like. And uh, I really was a big fan of Mia Hansen Love's uh, previous films, especially uh, Goodbye First Love. And so I went into this kind of expecting to like it. And I've seen it three times now, and I like it more each time. Um, I think it might be available to, to rent through Amazon streaming now, but it's... I don't know. I, I think it's it's one I could watch every week. I really like it a lot. Awesome. Gonna check it out soon. That's another one. Uh, we uh, we had a friend. Um, I think yeah yeah we had a we had a friend come and visit us, and we took him to the music box. And the two movies we had to choose between were The Wolf Pack and Eden. But because he had never been in the music box before, The Wolf Pack was playing in the big theater. We we took mm-hmm. him to the to see the Wolf Pack, and uh, I, I look at that as like the road, like oh that was where that was the sliding doors moment. It's like oh I could I could have <laughs> saw Eden because <laughs> I, I, I was know, a huge I mean, fan of the Wolf Pack, but uh, I really wanted to see I, I 
the more I hear you talk about it, the more I want to see Eden. You know, I, a lot of people, can, I, I know people that are underwhelmed by Eden uh, because it just, it takes time to get going and it's, it's probably like over long. I am never bored with it, um, but I understand some of the criticisms of it. Um, but actually, I think her husband, uh, Olivier Asias, uh, we might be talking about a little bit right, uh, right uh, now, but yeah, they were both there. If they, yep. <laughs> All right. Well, go ahead. Uh, I did not know that. That was her, that he was her husband, but Olivia, Oliver Asias or whatever. Olivia Asias. Uh, he directed. It's actually pronounced Asias. 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 Um, directed Clouds of Silmaria, which is my number two, um, possibly my number one, but I'm going to go ahead and just say it's my number two. Uh, it's it is uh, primarily above all else. It is a movie made up of 2,000 completely transcendent, wonderful moments that are just strung together, logically. Um, I love all of the minor details of their world. I love seeing the finagling that Kristen Stewart has to do as this uh, famous French actress's uh, personal assistant with her multiple cell phones and trying to organize photo shoots and trying to, you know, deal with, uh, you know, movie role offers and, and – you know, she gets listed on IMDb as a movie that she's not part of, so they have to, so they like have to figure out how to, how to get her off of that. There's like just all this like little procedural stuff that Kristen Stewart does really well, and it is this perfect combination of a professionalism and a, a there's a certain exasperated nature, and there's a certain she has to be the bad guy. So like when they get to the hotel room, she's the one's like, get rid of the fruit. Can you turn this off, please? Because, like, you don't want people walking away going, like, yeah, that actress was a real bitch because she was so demanding. So you have this personal assistant who has to do all those things. Like, it's such a detailed, wonderful look into their world. I think their relationship is incredible in the way they play off each other. Um, So, like, there's just that surface-level really gratifying experience to it. Um, It says things very subtly about, uh, like, what it is to be an actress who is aging – Um, It is not like a, it's not like an essay. It's not like a screed about, you know, the, the unfair practices against, against women in the film industry. It's not, it's so much more subtle than that. Um, But really the, the, the crux of the movie is about Juliette Binoche sort of dealing with her aging and what that means. And she's playing a role, you know, she, she's in the, in the film, she's famous for a, a movie a play adaptation she was in where she plays like an 18 year old who seduces a 40 year old. Um, and now she's 40 and she's getting offered the 40 year old role. And it's, and that is sort of the crux of her, um, of, of her arc is her trying to come to grips with where she is in her life. And she's inconsistent and she's fickle and she can be immature in the way that famous people can be immature. And she's codependent. She has a codependent relationship with, uh, with um, Kristen Stewart's character that is never that never turns into something super dramatic. Um, they have little microaggressions against each other where they're uh, being passive aggressive and or resentful. Um, there is they, it's such a wonderfully textured relationship, and everything about the film is wonderfully textured. And it's not even like, and as character driven as it is, it still has these wonderful moments where after they're on the train, the first scenes on the train where they learn that her, she learns that her mentor and her her first major film director has died and she's sort of grappling with his death. You, it cuts to his home in the Swiss mountains 
where you see his body being choppered out and then you see a police officer like come to his door and inform his wife. And it's just, there's like little moments like that where they leave the main characters uh, expressive moments. There's a part where Kristen Stewart has to drive through fog and this, there's this pounding aggressive techno music um, and she has to like pull over the road and vomit. And it's, there, there's little uh, there's there's a part where it unexpectedly turns into a silent film and it doesn't explain until later that they were watching a silent film um, about this weather phenomenon that's it's there's so much to it um, that is just wonderful I, I just love every part of it like really all this could be this this whole review of it if you want to call it a review could be is just me listing like a thousand things I love about Clouds of Silmaria because there there are a thousand things I like about it but on top of that, I think that the relationship Juliette Binoche and Kristen Stewart have is remarkable. And I think Kristen Stewart uh, – so they start reading lines where Juliette Binoche is playing the 40-year-old character in the play. And Kristen Stewart, you know, not being an actress, she's just a personal assistant. She's just sort of doing line readings um, as the 18-year-old. And you already know that it's an emotional experience for Juliette Binoche's character because it, she has, it means that she has to face her aging. But – it unexpectedly becomes an emotional experience for Kristen Stewart because she has to, because in reading this play, you know, in, in, in sort of reenacting these scenarios, she finds a lot that she relates to in her relationship with Juliette Binoche. And slowly she sort of starts to realize that they have a toxic working relationship and that she maybe shouldn't be working for her. But again, there's no big blow up. Um, there's a really intense sort of read through, where Juliette Binoche is snapping at Kristen Stewart because she's like, oh, this, this play's impossible. It's so stupid now, you know, because she doesn't want to admit that she relates to the character that she's playing. She wants to still relate to the character that Chris Stewart's doing the line readings for. And there's this really intense um, reaction that Kristen Stewart has that she almost allows herself to have, but because she's professional, she cannot, you know? So she just sort of, like, takes a deep breath and is like, no, you are wrong. I'm disagreeing with you. And there, the the intense sadness and frustration that she has just behind her voice, just behind her eyes, it's so subtle and so wonderful. It's just, like, totally next-level acting. It's one of my favorite uh, performances in any movie of this decade. Like, I just... Yeah, there's nothing I don't like about Clouds of Silmaria. It's a really, really special movie. Uh, um... The one thing, the one other thing I'll say about it is that a lot of reaction I've heard to this movie is people finding it puzzling or thinking it's like some kind of mystery movie. Like I guess they they get they get something like certified copy or something where it's like, oh, do, when they are reenacting this play, are they becoming the characters? Is fiction and reality interrupting each other? And that's not really the kind of movie it is. Everything about this movie is very straightforward. At a certain point, Krista Stewart vanishes from the movie. But it's kind of clear exactly what has happened. She's just left. Like, because that it has been her arc this whole time. It's been building Which up. me out. Well, I mean, yeah, but it's that's where her character has to go. And her character's probably healthier now. And, like, that is also what happens in the play. But they're not the same character, uh-huh. you know. And Juliet Binoche is not the same character. They're just finding catharsis through relating to these characters, which is... Oh, God, it's so good. Um, and also there's a scene where Julia Binoche and Kristen Stewart are in a movie theater wearing 3D glasses watching a super shitty sci-fi, like, a young adult movie. 
Um, and Juliet Binoche takes her 3D That's glasses called, on and off. The fifth wave. She takes her 3D glasses on and off, which is exactly what I always do in a 3D movie. I'm always like, wait a second, what is this really doing? Um, that's one of my favorite moments in movies this year. So yeah, we could have done a whole podcast. I, 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 yeah, I could do a whole podcast in Cloud of Silver. Yeah, I'm, maybe I'll do like a commentary track or something. Yeah, you should. But yeah, I fucking love this movie. This is, I don't, I don't think it all adds up into something transcendent the way my number one movie does. But I think this is probably my personal fave, actual like favorite of the year. Because <laughs> like, oh. I was surprised. I was surprised that it wasn't your number one because I know that you were real passionate yeah, about this. Yeah, me too. Film. Yeah, I'm. It's. I, I. I. really am passionate about this. It's really close, but it's. Um. I. I just really, really, really love my number one film, and my number one film is more surprising. Uh, and my number one film is probably less like, like Casa Silveria. It's not necessarily a world you haven't been to. It's not necessarily a theme that hasn't been tackled. It's not necessarily looks unlike. European art films look these days. There's nothing like there's it's mostly just in the texture that makes that so special to me. Whereas my number one film, which I'll be talking about in a second, that is the, that movie is like constantly surprised me in, in, in wonderful ways. So, but yeah, I, I fucking love clouds of silver Marie and I, I strongly recommend everyone see it. I strongly recommend everybody seeing my number two movie, which is the Duke of Burgundy. Oh, 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 oh. oh. the Flossigans. Um, the yeah, the sort of a far out and dreamy feel of this movie, and a moment where Evelyn's eyes zooms in on her lover's pelvis. Oh my God! Like I was just in heaven. I was, I mean, throughout this entire movie, I was feeling a transcendence and an appreciation for the craft of telling a story in such a unique way. Um, Like, I really like Barbarian Sound Studio, but this, to me, felt like a huge leap forward for this director. Mm -hmm. Because, um, I mean, while I appreciated the other film visually and... Again, creating like a, an eerie mood. This one, I actually fell, for, you know, I felt a lot of genuine emotion for these characters and their struggles, and you know, the the, the fact that they're experiencing essentially uh, a codependent relationship, but yet it's also a very tender and loving relationship at the same time, um, and they sort of, you know, struggle with that throughout the entire film and. You know, just there's there's certain scenes in this film that I'll I'll never shake, including like you know being put into um, you know the, the little what you might call it the box the box yeah and you know there's certain and there's just like things that stand out and sort of jump out at you like you know her awakening from a dream and you know uh, a long protracted sequence involving you know, um, her lover masturbating in bed and what that all means. Uh, so again, it's like a series of moments that just adds up to this cohesively beautiful, twisted, interesting film that just happens to have mannequins for some reason, um, and moths and butterflies and just a real genuine tenderness to it at the same time. The ending, I'm still, I still, 
don't know what to make of 100%, and I like that feeling. I talked about that with you, I think, when we initially reviewed it, what the ending essentially means for their relationship. And I wish I could walk away saying definitively what, you know, like, are they going to make it? Are they going to, you know, are are they meant to last long term or not based on the fact that they essentially go back to their routine? I don't know. But I kind of like that I don't know. But I absolutely love everything about this movie. It says so much about relationships in a very profound way. And I think everybody should see it that hasn't seen it. Yeah, I agree. And I think people will be talking about it more in a few minutes. Yeah, could be. It could be. What's your number two, Bill? <laughs> My number two is um, it's a film that I went into. I saw it at the New York Film Festival last year, and I was dreading it, but I had time to kill. And, uh, you know, I and a lot of people left during the screening. Uh, I loved it, and I thought about it ever since. And it came out early this year in theaters. It's Alessandro. Alonzo's Hoha, Vigo Mortensen, uh, as a, um, it's in the 19th century. He's a Danish engineer with his teenage daughter, and they're traveling with a, uh, an Argentine army, and his daughter uh, kind of runs off with one of the soldiers, uh, and he goes off on a journey to find her. The plot isn't really that important. Uh, what is great about Hoha, it's... It's shot in the one three three to one aspect ratio. It's shot in the square aspect ratio. It's framed so that there's a lot of uh, bold sky and a lot of uh, bright green in the compositions. It's it's kind of like a um, like a hallucinatory like acid western, like kind of like El Topo or Dead Man or Monty Hellman's The Shooting or even um, something like Aguirre the Wrath of God, uh, the Herzog film. Like it has that kind of. Uh, dreamy kind of adventure feel like very uh psychedelic kind of feeling to it even though it's not like overtly surreal the way like Alejandro Hodorowsky films are like it doesn't have a lot of bizarre images but it, there's a certain spaciness to it like it, you know it, it's the kind of film that feels like it should be playing you know at two in the morning like in a, in a near empty theater somewhere it's it, 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 it's a it's a film that is a very potentially boring for a lot of people, I I feel sorry for people that see it on Netflix for the first time because in the theater it was really something. Um, I, I don't know. It, it was nearly my number one film. I really love it a lot, but I I, I know a lot of people that find it tedious. Um, I I think it's absolutely captivating, and I've shown it to people that really loved it. So I I know I'm not crazy, but it's um, I don't know. It's 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 an interesting film um, that. Yeah, I don't know. If you like that kind of storytelling, like you don't mind the slow pacing, you like visually striking mood pieces, um, you know, and I feel like we'll be talking about another visually striking moody film soon, but uh, it's it's worth a look if you're feeling adventurous, I guess. Yeah, I got I to gotta check that out. I, I only, yeah, I only read about that recently when I saw it on someone's list, and it sounds really interesting. Um, it, you you got to stick yeah. with it, but I mean, it, it's I think it rewards patience if you if you're in the mood for something like that. How do you pronounce it again? Ho ha. Oh, okay, I thought more it was like hoo ha, but okay. Yeah, no, not a hoo ha. It's not an opportunity. Okay, okay, okay. So um, we're gonna go ahead and read the rest of the top ten list that got sent to us, um, and determine what the top ten listeners' films are. Um, we got one from Melody Ferrello. 
um, who says that she promises to visit my store one of these days because she thinks my love of movies is every bit as special as Jim's. And She's a nice girl. She says that uh, she enjoyed meeting you at the Landmark for a showing of Room. Aww, yeah. And she thanks us for introducing Melancholia to her because uh, on the Soderbergh episode we debated its merits and I think it was you and Andrew James who were quite fond of it and I did not like it and she, and she saw it, thought it sounded interesting and she saw it now it's one of her favorites. Um, her number 10 was Tangerine. Her number 9 was... The, her number 8 was Bone Tomahawk. Whoa. Her number 7 was Diary of Dang. a Teenage Girl. Her number 6 was Mistress America. Her number 5 was Mad Max Fury Road. Her number 4 was Queen of Earth. Her number 3 was The Look of Silence. Her number 2 was Anomalisa. And her number 1 was Carol. We have one right here from Nat Almeral of uh, Still Watching the Skies fame. Um, oh, that's right. He made us cookies. Is that the is that the surprise? Or did no. you just forget that he made us cookies? He made us cookies. Well, we'll eat later when we're not on the air, I guess. Um, they look they look nice. Uh, so Nat Nat's list was uh, number ten Anomalisa, number three Sicar number number ten Anomalisa, number nine Sicario, number eight The Martian, number seven The Big Short, number six Creed, number five Ex Machina, number four It Follows, number three Spotlight, number two Hateful Eight, and number one surprise surprise Mad Max Fury Road. He said the biggest point his biggest disappointment was Mr. Holmes. <laughs> and uh, he said uh, the best newcomer of the year was Harrison Ford. He's excited to see what more that guy has up his sleeve. Um, Corey Pierce sent us one. Uh, only person to send uh, to have this movie on his list. His number 10 was The Peanuts Movie. His number 9 was The Martian. His number 8 was Cobain Montage of Heck. His number 7 was Springs. His number 6 was The Diary of a Teenage Girl. His number 5 was Paddington. His number 4 was Spotlight. His number 3 was Me, Earl, and the Dying Girl. His number 2 was Mistress America. And his number 1 movie of the year was Ex Machina. Spoiler alert, he doesn't like my number 1 movie. That's too bad. Um, Sean Pierce sent us a list. Sean Pierce is uh, one of the directors of Meathead Goes Hog Wild, and he was on for the Vim Vendors episode. Yeah, great guy. Really great guy. He said, hope it all is well. Uh... He didn't get to see as many movies as he'd like to this year, but here were his top ten. His number ten was What We Do in Shadows. Number nine was Sicario. His number eight was 99 Homes. His number seven was Carol. His number six was Tangerine. His number five was Manglehorn, which hasn't been mentioned yet, but I believe you like that, Jim. I do like it. I should watch that again, too. Uh, number four was Mad Max Fury Road. His number three was Cloud Stills Maria. His number two was A Pigeon Sits on, sits on a Branch Reflecting on Existence. <laughs> um, and his number one was The Look of Silence. He said it was a very solid year off to a slow start, but there was a lot of quality films. He didn't get to see many great discoveries from around the world, um, but he hopes maybe that will change next year. Or this year, I suppose, since it is now 2016. Uh, we got one last one from Gina Reinhold. Second to last. Oh, that's that's your little – well, I didn't add it up, so this, the last one I guess doesn't count because you didn't no, send it, it to me. it doesn't. Okay. Number 10 is Spotlight. Number nine is The Forbidden Room. Number eight is The Look of Silence. Number seven is Mad Max Fury Road. Number six is Queen of Earth. Number five, Mistress America. Number four, Tangerine. Number three, Phoenix. Number two, The Duke of Burgundy. And number one was Carol. She said she joined Letterboxd just to follow me because I'm, she's a pathological stalker and a movie nerd. Oh, that's nice. And she's not on Facebook, but she checks the page every once in a while. And she loves the podcast because it makes her laugh, think, and she rushes out to the theater at Netflix and never she finishes an episode. <laughs> so thank you, Gina. Now, what's this little surprise you have for me that you've been teasing? We got um, another list. Okay. We have another email from some guy named Shane Carruth. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, I never heard of him, but 
He says that, hello, Jim, everything out this year is garbage. And by garbage, I mean about 20 other words everyone says that does not belong in a polite email. The exceptions I can remember are inside out, because it actually increased the vocabulary kids have to talk about their experiences while while simultaneously not being boring. Fine, I cried when Bing Bong sacrifices himself. And also, I really liked The Lobster for completely dismantling the language of adult relationships, which it's valuable too. Best direction goes to the studios who have perfected the marketing sleight of hand trick of convincing us their films have importance while creating things we are all better off not thinking about. Sincerely, Shane. <laughs> that is a real, that is a real email from Shane Carruth. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, man. That guy sounds fun. <laughs> <laughs> well, we can't wait to see the modern ocean. Yeah, uh, right? If it comes out, I, yeah, I really, I really hope you get him on your show. I, I really feel like I've so much about him just now. Um, <laughs> so here is the five listeners poll list. Again, the way I weighted it was things that got the number one spot. They got ten points. That uh, got the number ten spot. Got one point. Um, and here was what the listeners decided. Number ten. It was tied between Creed and Duke of Burgundy. Both got fifty points. Uh, the look of silence. <laughs> Was another favorite that was number that was number nine and that got uh, 51 points. Uh, there's the Martian, got 52. It follows was number seven and that was got 54. The Big Short was number six uh, was number six and it got 60. Ex Machina was number five that got 65. Wow. Inside Out was number four that got 67. Carol, uh, Shane Carruth's favorite right there. Carol <laughs> was number three that got 98. Spotlight was number two, and that got 102. And then Mad Max Fury Road, not surprisingly the winner, with 197, almost twice as much as the number two movie of the year. Oh, my God. Uh, I think if there's a favorite film of the year, it's Mad Max Fury Road. So congratulations, Mad Max uh, Fury Road. Thank you, everyone, for sending in your lists. Now, should I just read my number one since I'm guessing you and Bill have the same number one? Yeah, sure, go ahead. Okay, I think I'll do it. My number one film of the year yeah. is a movie. Now, you said just read. Should I just read my number one? And I approve that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what you're doing right now, but you're not just reading your number one. Uh, there's a moment in this uh, film where a character gets. <laughs> Hey, it, it's getting it's getting loopy, Tom. Yeah, getting no loopy, Tom. I don't know what that means. Please go. It's Carol. Yeah. 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 What puts this above everything else for you? Yeah. There's a moment where uh, Rooney Mara gets in the in, in the car with with Carol, and again talk about this is the year of subvert, subverting expectations. I was expecting them to have um, like some you know revealing conversation about one another. But it's really sort of hushed and muted, and it's all about um, you know close-ups on fingertips and attention to detail. Even the song that plays on the radio kind of cuts in and out in the uh, in, in the sound. Um, and it, it really is more about you know a lot of things that you mentioned earlier, lighting and shadow and uh, just the sort of internalized feeling of being in love rather than externalizing it because it's not all 
brought out into the forefront because of the time period that they're in, which is a given. But I, you know, I mean, other than that moment in, when she gets in the car with with Carol, um, I knew when this movie began paying homage to Brief Encounter with the way it starts, I was in. And I felt like I, you know, it was a movie that uh, I was, you know, experiencing love in a different way both with how it's presented with the way these characters are experiencing it um you know again like reflections and close-ups of things uh attention to detail with her with uh dolls and then suddenly she's into trains so like that interesting um sort of non-conformist streak that she might have in her um yeah and this, uh, the, the author, Patricia Highsmith, you know, she's sort of known for doing Strangers on a Train and sort of this Hitchcockian kind of quality to her writing where she sort of focuses on the pathological, um, obsessive qualities of human nature. And this is sort of the opposite of that. And I think, you know, even Haynes sort of brings that up in his interview with Mark Maron about this sort of being the amorous, warm side to, um, you know, being... Um, enamored with something or somebody. Uh, it sort of just felt like my experiences with falling in love sort of haphazardly, and I can't get enough of um, what Todd Haynes does with each film, and it seems to be expressing something different every time. Because, like, everybody sort of came out of the gate saying, oh, it's another, it's well, it's Far From Heaven Light. Oh, it's another Douglas Sirk kind of homage. And it's not at all. It really isn't. Like, even the way its the cinematography is, it's not like every color is highlighted and bright and vibrant. So, you know, I've, I've heard arguments, you know, like, oh, it's, it's, it's not going to set, set the world on fire in terms of, like, how it speaks to you know, the, 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 the culture of the times. It's just a simple love story done right in every way. Awesome. Yeah. Okay. Can't I love argue the bookend. I love the way she touches her ah, the hand on the shoulder and how it means something kind of different at the beginning and then at the end and that final that very final shot where it's it's totally like an earned optimism. Towards them getting together, possibly. I don't know if they'll make it in the long run. They still got to be very secretive about their love, but it's uh, it's a really beautiful film. Like this, like this and Duke of Burgundy are how I how I view relationships and love encapsulated, kind of. Mm-hmm. One sort of the dark side a little bit, but this one's sort of the warmer side to it, I think. Uh, Bill, what's your number one movie of the year? Probably yours. Uh, it's the Duke of Burgundy, Peter Strickland's uh, uh, film. I, I think that this I saw in January, um, and I haven't seen anything better uh, since January of, of last year. I, I think for me, I, it's just um, like I've been, you know, really fascinated with this whole wave of. Uh, art films kind of using genre imagery to kind of get their 
stories into the marketplace. Uh, you know, it's not a new phenomenon. I mean, you could trace it back to things like Vampire or, or you know, some of the Tarkovsky science fiction films. Or, but like in the last couple of years, you have things like Under the Skin, you have Antichrist, you know, Beyond the Black Rainbow, um, some of the Shane Carruth films, since we mentioned him earlier. Um, you know, the, uh, the uh, A Strange Call of Your Body's Tears, some of the Refn stuff. Um, and, and this felt like maybe... I don't, it's, it sounds like preposterously that this is the film that it was all building toward, but it, it feels like this really kind of pushes Peter Strickland ahead of everyone else as far as like the person that is using cult film language to tell a character, like a, a, a real relationship story. And it's not gimmicky and it doesn't like, I mean, he's using the cinematic language of Jess Franco or, or Barovchik or Ellen Rebrier or, you know, genre line. Like he's using the Euro softcore imagery, but he's not, but it, it, it's not like pastiche. Like it's not, um, I don't know if you guys saw the editor, the, the Jallo parody, but like it's, it, it's, it's using it in the service of like a really like for a film that is like, you know, about, you know, BDSM relationship, or whatever. Like it's, it's a universal story. Um, it just happens to have all these trappings that feel like they're, uh, more niche than they really are. Um, it's, I mean, I, I, you know, I think the performances are perfect. I think the atmosphere is perfect. I think that it has like moments of real mystery and, and beauty. I think it has the best opening credits. Not that it's a small, small thing of any film of the year. Uh, I think that, uh, the soundtrack is, is gorgeous. Um, I've seen it maybe four times now. It's always satisfying. Um, and, but it's satisfying to me, like intellectually as a film buff, that it like it it's using references in a way that doesn't feel like just tribute to other films. Like it's using it for a, for an original purpose. Um, and you know, considering it's like it was derived from you know an, a, like an aborted remake of uh, Jess Franco's *Lorna the Exorcist*. Like it feels like uh, I love those exploitation movies. Like I don't really sometimes get. Uh, sometimes it makes me roll my eyes a little bit when I hear that it's like, you know, it's finally like a real movie being made out of these trashy films. Like, I like those trashy films. But I think that, I don't know, it's for me, it just, nothing else I saw this year really threatened to overtake it. I mean, as much as I love all the films we've you know been talking about today, I think that this one just feels like like a new classic, um, which sounds like highfalutin, but I think yeah, it might yeah, actually Yeah, I agree. It's also my number one. Um I don't know. I I have talked so like like you said, this movie came out at the beginning of the year. Um, I've talked so much about this movie throughout the course of the year. I don't know where I've talked about it to whom, and I I, I don't want to talk about it for like forty minutes once on this podcast. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I don't want to feel redundant. Um, yeah, you you did. I do think that there is some very very astutely observed essential truths to this movie um, because a relationship is two people with two different flawed brains deciding to come together and try to act as one symbiotic unit. But the problem is you both have different brains and you have different expectations and you go, okay, well, how do we fix that? It's like, well, we can say, we can communicate. We can say, you know, this is what I like. Well, this is what you like. Okay, so I'll try to do this, and you try to do this. But then the more you do that, the more it starts to feel just, like, oppressive. And, uh... you know, the BD- BDSM is a good ex- way of externalizing this, 
but you could be the most vanilla. You could be in an asexual relationship, um, and you could probably, and it probably be still these things are going on. And that's, I love how that ties back into the moths because the moths are something they obsessively study, but they study them pinned. You know, they're they're dead. You can you can see everything, and they can, you know, you can preserve it, but it's not alive. Um, it's not spontaneous the way the moths are when they're flying in the forest. Um, and that's what the relationship is like. The relationship is like, well, we want this to be this fun, spontaneous, freewheeling thing that where we play, but where it's this game we play and it's this way we interact with each other and we get our needs fulfilled and we, it's the way we express love to each other. But, well, you could express your love better to me if you just did it this way or, well, I mean, you know, you just you need to hammer this out because you're not doing it the way you should be doing it. It seems like your heart's not in it. It's like, well, I, I don't just want you to want to do this. I want you to want me to want you to do, you know, like it gets into all those insane mind games that are, you know, again, like it's ex- well externalized by BDSM, but that is just how you relate to other human beings. Um, um, and sometimes you pee on them. Well, yeah, that's not what I'm talking about, but um, I forget what I was saying. At any rate, uh, yeah, like it. There's the same way that I feel. I felt that Upstream Color had some really, really strong essential truths that I had not ever seen presented as well or as interestingly. Um, this film about relationships that those those truths being a little bit more specific to relationships I have been in um, the this feels more this is the same way it's, it's a bit more universal um, I don't think I like this as much as my favorite movie of all time but but like it's it's the most special movie of the year it is the movie of the year for me because it is the movie that I talked about and thought about the most over the course of the year. And it is the movie that enriched my life the most, uh, because I found catharsis in it. And I found like good objective ways of thinking about how you are in relationships. And you think that, you know, you, if you don't put any thought into it, you can assume that things are one way when they are not, um, so yeah, I mean it's and it's just like fucking cool. Like it just looks good and it has fucking awesome music and it those moth drones are like building up in yeah. you know uh, like they build such tension and 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 it has a fucking Stan Brackage seat tribute and it and it has these weird yeah you know the other thing I like about this movie is that it's not you know for as meaningful as it is and for how much it relates to the real life there are things that just aren't answered like where are they what is this like what world is this is this is this, is the entire world without men is this like is it, is it like an erotic fantasy world where it's all lesbian entomologists or is this like an island where they all happen to live like what what are the mannequins going you know what are those mannequins during the lectures like what is this there's there's just enough there to tickle the back of your brain, um, even as you watch it multiple times and begin to settle into its rhythms and see what it's saying, and you know the little the surprise of who is actually in control and who isn't, you know that after that is long faded. Um, there's still so much to it that is fun to pick at um, and is lyrical and interesting and and unanswerable in a way that is really satisfying. 
Um, and another movie that's sort of based on characters glancing and looking and body language and gestures that are not always communicated out loud. Right. That's something I really respond to. And also, like, the other thing about this movie that you can't even say about Upstream Color is it has a sense of humor. Like, it recognizes it is a silly world it's created. Like, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't sell that world short. Like, it buys into 100%. But, like, it knows when, when they're talking to the human toilet salesman. Mm-hmm. Like, it knows that it's funny. And it knows how to be comedic. And, like, you know, like, there's no real humor in Carol. There's no real humor in Upstream Color. There's no humor in Under the Skin. But, like, the humor that is in Duke of Burgundy gives it such a warmth that a lot of other, like, really profound, similar films of recent years don't have, like, that just don't have. Um, it's, it just, yeah, it just feels really special, and it's one of those things that I'm almost afraid to watch the next Peter Strickland movie, because I just don't think, I think everything lined up perfectly. <laughs> this, this feels like one of those once-in-a-lifetime movies that I can't imagine him ever living up to it again. And if he just yeah. goes... And, like, I just know that if he goes back to doing really solid, interesting, tense, scary, like, genre pastiche, like, Barbarian Sound Studio, where that movie was, like, a really pleasant surprise and I really enjoyed seeing it in theaters, if he goes back to something like that, I'm going to be a little disappointed. And I'm, like, uh, so I'm almost dreading that inevitable, or, I don't know, like, if his next one's even better, maybe he's fucking the greatest filmmaker of all time. Like, I don't know, but... It'll be a love story between two men. Who knows? You never know. Anything's possible. And plus, I, I I just don't know why people aren't, I don't know, as enthused about this movie. Well, there, is it's, it, it is, is enigmatic. Is it just they haven't seen it? I, 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 I think... I, I mean, for, for in, in my social circle, this this is the Mad Max Fury Road, you know, well, runner-up. I mean, it's, in terms of, like, you know, cinephile friends, like, it seems like almost everyone I know likes this film a lot. It's, it's the best film of the year for a couple people I know. Um, so it's, it, it will have a growing following as word spreads because it's that good, but it's, it never had a wide release. No. I mean, when it played in Chicago, it played four times at the Music Box, and it played in the smallest theater. Oh, man. <laughs> so, oh, man. like, literally, when I say I saw it twice in theaters and I accounted for 2% of all ticket sales in Chicago... I'm not exaggerating. Like, it had a very small release, and then it had another, like, three days at the Gene Siskel after that. So, yeah. it's it's a small movie. I think it's enigmatic in a way that I, I can see people watching it and going, that was cool, I enjoyed the world of that, or I enjoyed the moth sequence, you know, but not really digging deeper into what it's actually saying. I've certainly seen that on, like, Letterboxd and stuff like that. I think it's a movie that is it's easy to miss. I don't think it's as puzzling in the way like Upstream Color is. Yeah. Oh yeah. Where I mean I've seen Upstream Color maybe eight times now, and there's still like huge swaths of that movie's world that I do not understand. Man, I, um, I think that Duke of times. Burgundy reveals itself fairly well if you're like really paying attention to it and thinking about it. So I think that title also tricks people into yeah. it's like a costume film because it's right. you know. I, I, I when I, I saw it uh, with Strickland doing Q and A afterwards, and I went the next day and I posted something on Facebook, just be like, look, look past this title. 
Friend, yeah. Friends of mine, you're going to like this. Find it when it comes around. Yeah, I never even I didn't, I didn't even think about that. But the first time I heard of Duke of Burgundy, it was Mike D'Angelo was raving about it from some festival he saw it at. Um, and I was like, oh, it's some costume drama. It's probably some adaptation of some French novel or something. Yeah, like, it sounds like an Eric Romer title. I'm trying to think. It, it sound, yeah, it sounds like a costume picture. Yeah, it, sound, it sounds really dull. And then you see screenshots and it's just like tastefully dressed women or, you know, it's like, or, you know, it's like, okay, I, I guess I can figure out what this is. It's some super subtle psychological thing. I don't know. I feel like, yeah, it's an easy thing to miss if you're not really opening your mind to it. If you just enjoy it on a surface level, the way like some people enjoy Lynch movies entirely on a surface level, like it's not the best movie of the year. Um, but I think if you are really reading into it and you are really opening yourself to what it is saying and you're really taking into account the sheer um, the, the sheer unlikelihood that it even exists that this that this movie uh, that this like this movie is all of these things um, and does and balances all of these things so well uh, it's yeah. it, I can't say it's anything other than the the best movie of the year. Yeah, I expect. I mean, if if the if the films like Under the Skin and Upstream Color and Vanishing Waves and A Mare and Drive and Barbarian Sound Studio, uh, if, if all of these quasi genre art type films are ever grouped together the way film noir films are grouped together, like down the road, I feel like I feel like the Duke of Burgundy will probably stand as the as one of the key film in it's like the double indemnity yeah or it's or it's the film that transcends that like because yeah. it has that that stylish cool you know referencing to cult film kind of cinema language but it also has this really uh profound story and characters which yeah i like a lot of those other films but they are they are stylish exercises and i say that with love i mean i right. I, I would praise all of those films but i mean um and, and upstream color i mean has an emotional core obviously also but like you know I, but i think that um the duke of burgundy it feels like it's that but it's also something else um yeah. and i think that's i mean you know i mean we we can we can all sing its praises all day it's 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 a masterpiece yeah it, it truly is um so that's that's our number one films of the year um we uh, we talked about 2015 films. I know. Isn't that weird? Yeah. Is there anything else you wanted to say about 2015 movies, Jim? Um. Overall, no. I I was fairly pleased with this year, and you know, this is a top ten. I'm more than happy to, you know, cement. Yeah. There's a part three? Yes, uh, we wrap up the discussion on 2015, but the bulk of part three focuses on a retrospective interview with questions from Bill about the show's history and Patrick and myself. So hopefully you enjoyed that too. So go over and download that next. <laughs>